0: This is a news laundry podcast, and you're listening to NL Hafta.
1: Angres Apna Lagan or News Laundry Apna Hafta Kabina We are back on the Hafta. Before I introduce the panel, I would like to apologize. I you see the ignorance that one has of caste privilege. We didn't have any external panelists last time, and there was just the four of us in-house. So I had introduced us as the Chandal Chokri. That is a casteist slur. I wasn't even aware that chandal is actually a caste. It is a caste. So I would like to apologize for that. I shall not describe our in-house panel as that in future. So yes, as my Buddhist friend used to say, recall and cancel. I said, what does that mean? That means you've pulled your words back from the universe and canceled them. I said, okay, fine. (laughs) So uh, this podcast is being recorded on Thursday, the 16th of July at 12.15 in the afternoon. This time we have a much more accomplished panel with two people joining us from outside the office. Uh, we have Sohasini Haider joining us from her home in these COVID times.
2: Hi, Abhinandan.
1: Uh, you... I'm sure all our listeners already know who you are, but we have to follow the formality of introducing you as a diplomatic editor of Hindu. You write on foreign policy issues. In fact, you have been a foreign policy expert for a long time. You're foreign affairs editor and the prime prime anchor for India's you know English channel CNN and IBN. In fact, you had a show called Worldview with Suhasini Heather. And you have also won the Prem Bhatia Award for print journalism. Uh, so welcome. And you have written a couple of pieces, in fact, in the last two weeks on... Uh, Uh, several foreign policy issues which I'll discuss in a little more detail. We also have joining us Anand Vardhan from Patna. Hi, Anand. Hello. Anand is an accomplished writer and he is also a teacher and Guru ki izzat karna hamara dharm hai. So welcome Guruji. I believe although the numbers of COVID in Bihar are suddenly alarmingly going haywire, is it more testing or is there something has happened? There
0: are two, three factors at work. First, yes, testing has uh, scaled up and uh, yesterday was the first day when 10,000 tests were carried in a single day. There is also a perception that uh, the lo- when lockdown was slackened or uh, relaxed, mm. it was a period when mass migration, reverse migration to Bihar happened and that was not the time for the lockdown to be uh, relaxed. And uh, since the, the contribution of uh, migrants returning is high in the number of infected cases. There is a correlation being established between the two factors. I see.
1: So uh, in house we have Raman Kripal. Hello. Lone, Hello. Manisha Pandey. Hello. And I'm Abhinandan Sekri. So uh, before Manisha gives us the headlines, uh, just a couple of announcements. For the next three or four weeks, haftas will be free. They will be outside the paywall. I hope this doesn't disincentivize those of you who are subscribing and paying. We have thousands of paying subscribers, guys. We can only exist because of you. So don't say, if I will stop paying. This is happening because, as you know, we've moved to a new content management system. We are moving to a new website, a new UI UX. In the process of that, just the, 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 the process by which subscribers get the hafta behind the paywall has become a little patchy because our podcast player is not like integrating so well with our new website. So, a lot of subscribers are having problem accessing it. So, we've just made it free for everybody till that time. It'll be back behind the paywall. But I do hope you continue to pay.
3: And you can share these free ones with your friends and family and get them hooked. And then get them to subscribe when we're back.
1: Yes. Try to do that.
3: (laughs) B-E-R-M-W-E.
1: So, um, in fact, we have, you know, many people who are working on our podcasts. There's Snigdha, there's Aditya, there's Lippi, there's Harshula. You know, all the panelists. So... These people just need to be incentivized and some, some, sometimes they ask for salaries. So do consider subscribing. My God. Can you imagine <laughs> this generation of entitled salary wanters? All you Sachin pilot types. <laughs> but, the proper term is wage slaves. Wage slaves. Okay, wage slaves. And meanwhile, we have another NL Sena project coming up. Uh, the brutal killing of uh, Jairaj and his son Benix in Tamil Nadu uh, brought the spotlight back on custodial deaths. Uh, per a recent report, India saw on average five custodial deaths every day in 2019, which, why is there such an endemic problem? And we are going to be launching an NL Sena project to do a deep, you know, investigation into this. And Raman Sir, our managing editor, is an expert in doing stories that involve the police. So do contribute and make sure that we have enough resources to put enough reporters do this report. And if Raman Sir gets arrested, we should also be able to afford lawyers <laughs> to get him out. And finally, I would like to give a shout out to Geeta Janardhan, who supported one year worth of student subscriptions. So, wow! Thanks, Geeta. You know, many of our students who are not earning can't pay to get access to paywall content. So we have a system where they can send us their ID card, their college name, so we have certainty that they're college students. And many of you who are earning actually sponsor these student subscriptions that's amazing so Geeta has just sent one year worth of student subscription for a person so thanks Geeta
3: thank you Geeta Janardhan thank you so much for uh, sponsoring our uh, student membership subscriptions if anyone of you listening to this podcast would also like to support a student subscription please write into us at contact at and we'll take that ahead. Of course, if you want to leave any feedback uh, and if you want to write into us, write into us at contact at or you could tweet to us at our Twitter handles.
1: On that note, let's have the headlines, Manisha.
3: Yes, Game of Thrones season five or six, or I don't know what, uh, in uh, Rajasthan. Uh, yes. Unending. The recent uh, development on that is that the rebel leader, Sachin Pilot, has been sacked as the deputy chief minister and removed its sa- as the state party chief. Uh, Rajasthan Assembly Speaker also sent notice to Pilot and 18 of his MLA allies demanding response in two days or risk disqualification. This is pertaining to uh, Ghelot's claim that he has two, uh, of, uh, two MLAs from Pilot's camp on phone negotiating with the BJP toppling the government. Uh, meanwhile, in Madhya Pradesh, uh, Sindhya is having a good time. Shivrat Singh Chauhan allocated portfolios, and uh, his camp has got key ministries. On the LAC standoff, there's news now in the there was re, there was a report in the Unix press that said that the first Intel on PLA came mid-April long before the Pengong clash. India and China uh, will hold its fourth round of consultation. First phase of disengagement is completed, now focuses on the second phase. Also on the LAC standoff, officials have said that months of planning and coordination preceded Chinese border movement. So it's going to be probably tough to negotiate uh, them to go back. Iran has dropped India from the Chaba rail project and cites funding delay. That's big news. I didn't really get much coverage, but it's big news. Um, meanwhile, a comedian in Mumbai, Agrima, she's a female comedian. She got rape threats and she was really harassed and bullied um, for jokes involving Shivaji Maharaj. I think she may also face legal action. At least that's what the Home Minister Anil Deshmukh said. Mm. Lacks have been displaced in Assam floods. National parks have been hit. This is an early um, sort of a phenomenon. In the Tablighi Jamaat case, Delhi court has allowed foreigners from five countries to walk free with fine. HRD minister has launched world's most affordable COVID-19 test kit developed by IIT Delhi. I didn't know that.
1: Mm. In fact, it was announced It's called Kourushur.
3: Uh, meanwhile, in Nepal, um, <laughs> Prime Minister K.P. Sharma said Lord Ram was Nepali, not Indian.
1: Hmm.
3: Uh, I thought there was confusion about where Sita was born and I think that was Nepal. But I didn't know there was a confusion on Ram also. Hmm. Uh, Google this is whole going idea to
4: of Nepal and India, I mean, you're yeah, talking well, about it today, there was no Nepal in India back then.
3: Google to invest in geo platforms, Mukesh Ambani has become the sixth richest person in the world, says geo has developed 5G from scratch in India. Great news for international students and even Indian students studying in the US. Uh, The whole policy on uh, having to go back if there's an online course has been revoked.
1: By Trump after so many universities. And a letter
3: by NYT opinion editor Barry Weiss created a lot of flutter on Twitter. Maybe we can discuss that. She's quit the NY Times. She was one of the conservative op-ed writers and she cited bullying by colleagues in an illiberal environment at the NYT.
4: Probably one of the worst columnists New York Times has had since I started reading.
3: I don't mind though. I like some of her stuff. She's
4: utterly, I wouldn't say dumb, but I mean, her writing is so lazy and cliched.
1: So, in fact, we'll talk about that. And I would like to weigh in, but I want to start off with this piece that Sohasini wrote in the Hindu, Iran Drops India from the Chabahar Rail project's site's funding delay. Now, in context of this, Sohasini, there is much speculation happening that is our handling of foreign affairs been, you know, really good, that we are, have a new place and respect and awe in the world. In fact, recently, another journalist, I think it was Shivam if I'm not wrong from print, tweeted a quote of... Um, it wasn't Pompeii, but someone in the White House who said that, you know, Trump will decide whether he wants to back China or India in our skirmish. I mean, of course, it wasn't an official I think statement. it was John
2: Bolton who said... That, right, uh, right. He I'm not the... sure which way Trump would lean.
1: Right. So now... A, why is this Iran deal so so important and uh, has yet got such little airtime on our prime time? Is it significant as far as foreign relations goes?
2: Well, let's uh, first understand. And thanks so much for pointing out uh, uh, my story, because as you you did say, a lot of foreign policy issues don't get uh, as much coverage. And then suddenly when things blow up, people say, where was this coming from? Uh, I don't mean blow up literally, I just mean when a story gets bigger. Um, So basically what happened, and that was the story we did, was that in 2016, India and uh, particularly the Indian Railways Construction Company, IRCON, signed an MOU with the Iranian railways in the presence of Prime Minister Modi when he had gone to Tehran uh, to say, we will build this railway line for you. The railway line goes from Chabahar Port, which of course is a very important project for India for a number of strategic reasons which is in in, uh, Iran's uh, southern coast. And uh, we essentially are building one terminal over there right now, and we have another terminal to build. So we were going to build this railway line that goes from the southern coast of Iran to Afghanistan. And if you've got a map in your mind or in front of you somewhere, it can also then extend up to Turkmenistan. What this essentially means is there's nothing on the land right now, there's nothing on the ground, nothing on paper, in fact, uh, at that time, but that this could become India's geostrategic doorway to Central Asia, to Russia, a way of bypassing Pakistan, which is always a troublesome neighbor. So, a lot of d- different reasons why this railway line could open up a lot, but nothing happened. For four years, we didn't move. Some say it's because uh, the funding took a while to uh, work out. Some say it's because the Iranians kept changing the terms of contract. Some say it's because of US sanctions and the idea that even if the US had given us a waiver to build a line uh, to buy steel, you need a different kind of permission to get banking loans, you need a different kind of permission. For whatever reason, for four years, nothing moved. And then suddenly, and after many, we heard many uh, uh, warnings, appeals, threats from Iranian leadership saying, you know, we need to move with this uh, rail project. Uh, we suddenly saw last week that Iran actually went ahead and began the track lane for Chabahar zaidan on their own. And um, that's, uh, that was essentially what my story was, that Iran decided to go alone. And they told us officially that they were actually going to uh, build the the railway line on their own. And India, if it wants to, can join later. But India had not shown any interest. Why this hurts India or why it affects India or should we care about it? I think there are two parts to it. One is uh, you don't want to be cut out of any geostrategic game at this time. And uh, so there is the kind of FOMO, if you like, the fear of missing out Mm -hmm. uh, in Iran, especially when a country like China is signing a massive deal with them. Uh, but there's also the the more significant part that this was going to be your work around Pakistan. So what happens to that grand plan? Uh, the third is a reputational damage because India is loved around the world. We have a lot of goodwill. Uh, but, you know, there is this idea that Indian delivery on its promises is not very good. And this looks like one more uh, reason to say so. Finally, the fact that Iran didn't actually wait for us essentially means that somewhere there we've lost influence. Now, is that influence being lost because of domestic factors, because, you know, Iran has made a lot of comments on Yammu and Kashmir and on the CAA and all the rest? Or is it essentially because of India's positioning with the United States that Iran is, is spurring Iran to feel that maybe India is not going to keep its traditional ties there? So in a nutshell, it's a small thing in, in, in terms of all the projects that India might be doing around the world. It's one railway line, 628 kilometers long, but it could have many larger repercussions. And that's, that's essentially what the story was about.
1: So um, quickly, if you could just tell me, is the, I mean, from your reporting and your understanding of the situation, is the delay because of an economic reasons, because the economy has been hit significantly and not just COVID, even pre-COVID, uh, we weren't exactly kicking ass
2: well i mean can india afford a, a project like this yes india can i mean we had outlaid a 1.6 billion dollars for the uh, railway line but in honesty iran says it's building it at 400 million right now i mean the the point is you start somewhere you start you don't have to pay that entire amount immediately no it's much more likely that given that india has always been worried about us sanctions And remember, India became uh, one of the countries that just dropped Iran. Iran used to be our third largest oil provider, particularly because of the kind of cheap rates of oil that we used to get from Iran. Uh, But when the U.S. threatened sanctions, our first response was to say, no, no, we don't accept U.S. sanctions. We only accept U.N. sanctions. But within a year of that, we had actually dropped all oil. We zeroed out our oil imports from Iran. So having given in over there, it does seem to me that probably we didn't feel like fighting for this one either.
1: So, um, Anand, I know you follow foreign policy probably the most out of all of us here. You want to weigh in on this? How significant is this in the longer run or in our foreign policy positioning?
0: First, uh, I think the report itself has uh, been contested by by what I see in Al Jazeera, which it it says that Iran denied an Indian newspaper report that New Delhi was dropped from a key rail project along the border with Afghanistan after it showed reluctance in investing fearing American sanctions and it quotes uh, Iran's sports and maritime organization deputy Farhad Montasir. And who calls it a totally false that Iran has not inked and uh, um, any deal with India regarding the Jahedan or railway? so uh, I don't know what is the actual position Could I, uh,
2: but... yeah, sure. On that sure just, sure. just to ahead. say that it actually confirms the report in a sense, it's just Iran is putting it differently. Iran is saying the MOU was never turned into an agreement, and therefore India is not a part of uh, is not a part of uh, the railway deal. Uh, However, I think uh, uh, there are many things that would contest that point of view. Firstly, Javed Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, came as recently as January this year and and once again appealed to India to be a part of the deal. Secondly, MEA officials have told us that the MOU is still on, it has not been cancelled, and that India does hope that it can be a part of the deal later on. So I think what has happened is essentially People have used what the Ports uh, Authority person has said about the railway to make it seem as if it's not true that India was knocked out. Actually, what they're saying is worse. They're saying India was never a part of the Chabahar zahedan uh, railway line, which actually should be of greater worry, I I think, for India than, than anything else.
1: Oh, i see thanks um cool uh, that yeah so go ahead anand so in light of this uh, the al Jazeera report
0: and the contentious nature of what what uh, india has been actually dropped from or what whether it was a part of the deal or not i think a uh, um, authoritative clarification from the ministry of external affairs spokesperson is uh, required and a more clear communication from the uh, say, the no, topmost diplomatic circles would uh, uh, do a lot of good uh, in what's the actua- what is actual India's stand on it. Uh, second, uh, it may be talked down now, but at one point, as Vasani was pointing out, it was one of the signature moves of India in Central Asia, and uh, it was uh, built as key strategic uh, Uh, measure, uh, particularly bypassing Pakistan. It was also built for its uh, uh, utility in uh, uh, ensuring uh, energy supplies. Also, uh, it was uh, seen as a counter to the weather port, uh, which had a Chinese uh, involvement. And so, in a way, uh, the paper, uh, like Al-Jajira report quotes American interest. One thing that also should be taken into consideration is that it is also a period in which India has caused up to Israel Israel, and in a way that after say in early part of this century during Vajbi's regime after say a hiatus of one and a half decade around 14-15 years so the new terms of engagement with israel can also be one of the factors of uh, a kind of estrangement uh, with iran and uh, that has also i think a bit re- reconfigured the diplomatic dynamics
4: in um, central asia vis-a-vis.
0: right
1: and you want to step in before uh,
4: channel yeah hi swasni maharaja hey hi uh, hi so you you mentioned this uh, aspect of the India's relationship with America and how that has affected this. If I remember correctly, this was also the case when that India-Pakistan-Iran pipeline was being discussed, oil pipeline. And it was said at the time that it was because of the US pressure that it had to be dropped and uh, Manishankar Shankar even lost his job as the petroleum minister. But after that... Uh, pivot that under Obama, that U.S. will pivot more to South China, see that Southeast Asia region and not so much focus on Middle East. So ha- is that dynamic still there that the U.S. pressure on India not to engage with what it considers hostile powers in the Middle East and like actively pressures India not to engage with them? Is that dynamic still there or has that eased off somewhat?
2: Well, you know, the, the Americans always have a wish list and uh, they had a wish list for us a couple of years ago on Iran, which was essentially to uh, do three things. One was to stop oil, uh, all oil imports from Iran. The second was to uh, basically, you know, uh, stop projects in Iran, things like the gas and uh, other infrastructure projects we were working on. And the third actually was one place where they gave in, which was on Chabahar, because India explained to them that uh, the Chabahar port would help Afghanistan because Pakistan was cutting off India's links, uh, trade links to Afghanistan. Uh, So that was their wish list. Uh, Whether they're pushing for anything right now would be hard to say, but you know what's happened is there is this uh, cascading effect of any sanctions because what ends up happening is even if a country wants to go ahead with something, unless you're completely immune to uh, to global trade and to trade with the US, which does trade with absolutely everyone, it's very hard to find the banks to give you loans or to open an LC of credit for you or uh, to find equipment manufacturers. You know, there's been one point where India put out three tenders, I think, for just for cranes, for heavy lifting cranes. Eventually had to plug for a, plumb for a, a Chinese company to do that. Uh, so whether or not it's a direct pressure, the fact is it becomes very difficult to work when the U.S. doubles down on its sanctions. And at present, the U.S. is making Iran a, a particular focus of its sanctions. Um, so I think that does have an impact
1: on us. Okay. Now, if we could just move on to China briefly, and then I won't be discussing foreign policy, but there's one thing, so I would like you to weigh in on, but we'll just come to that. Now, when it comes to China, I think this is one of those stories that is, even for news professionals like me, very difficult to get clarity on what the status is. One reason is you can't send your own reporter there to see what's happening because no one can get there except the army. Two, the government has lost all credibility. I at least, I mean, it's not like anyone believed government handouts earlier, but now it's gone to the level of uh, it's gone they're that. not even giving
4: out handouts now. Yeah. It's just like official
1: sources. No uh-huh. statements, so nothing is coming. And uh, because the you know environment is so polarized, so I have you know the utmost um, respect and affection for um, Ajay. And he's been on Hafta two, three weeks ago. But I I know other journalists who also I like and I have no reason to really doubt them. And there are too many contradictory things being said about the pullback. One is that the pullback is, I mean, we have pulled back to a position that is a compromise for us. That where we were in the past historically patrolling, now we can't patrol. China has pulled back to where they used to patrol anyway. So they haven't gone further back from where they were, let's say, two years ago. But we have. And at the same time, the pullback from their point of view, they're still building, they're still reinforcing the heights at Pangong. Is there any clarity that you as a foreign affairs editor can provide on something like this or do we live in this you know, shady world of not knowing what to believe. Fog of war.
2: Well, let's put it this way. The fact is that uh, the one sort of credible way of finding out should be those satellite pictures. But the honest truth is, I think the satellite pictures are being read by various experts to essentially tell you what they already believe. Um, Because I don't think we understand there was one point at which uh, they were fighting about not whether the tents were in a place, but whether those tents belonged to India or whether they belonged to China. So I I think we haven't got much clarity on that. Look, as far as the reports go, uh, let's be clear over here, whether or not you accept what certain journalists and uh, you mentioned, Ajay, but others, many others have said. Uh, The truth is that they were saying as early as early May, that there was a problem, that the problem was not like a a routine problem because Chinese troops had aggressed in five different areas, that there were much larger numbers, that the skirmishes that we saw in Pangongso, for example, on May 5th was brutal. I mean, you had 70 Indian soldiers injured to the point they had to be flown to hospitals. And and, uh, these were being reported by the Hindu as well and by others. And yet the government kept saying, what was, what was it the government was saying? Mid-May, the army chief said, these are routine clashes. Uh, we heard from other uh, uh, members in the government who uh, routinely were denying stories coming out, saying there's nothing going on. Finally, you know, we, we heard even from the prime minister saying, nobody has come in. So this has been the government position. The fact is, until 20 Indian soldiers died in the Galwan Valley on June 15th, actually nobody was speaking. And I think Manisha re- referred to those reports that actually intelligence reports to this had come in in mid-April. So for two mm. months, uh, the the country, and I, I I feel scared to use the word, the nation hasn't been told, but, but, but the country has not actually been told what the picture was. It was only after that clash in which Indian soldiers died, and we don't yet know exactly what the casualties on the Chinese side were, that people were... Actually beginning to say things. Now you look a month later, and what is official well, you know, it's still very source-based about the exact positions. But what are we essentially saying? We're saying the Chinese have pulled back. Now, why would the Chinese pull back pull back mean anything to us unless Chinese had transgressed? Unless they were in places where they should be. So basically, what you're saying the point. government can't
1: have it both ways. If what they were saying in May was yeah. true, then what they're saying today kind of contradicts that position. So, I mean... So,
2: yeah. I mean, I I basically go with what Anand said earlier about Iran as well, which is that, you know, the government needs to feel that they need to tell people about these things, you know. And it's it's, it's not something that, oh, uh, this is all national security and we can't uh, uh, really uh, disclose anything. Eventually, if things are going to come out, the government has to be much clearer about what its position is, what is China's position, Uh, Are we creating, for example, buffer zones at the LAC? We've never had these before. Are we now going to create these? Are we pulling back ourselves, as you said, to places that we used to patrol in the past and we're not patrolling now, like things that are called like patrol point 14 or finger four, as they say. Are we now pulling back? Is that pullback permanent or is it temporary? These are things I think the government does need to engage with because, you know, in front of this country is, a huge example of 1962. And the idea that from 1959 to 1962, Prime Minister Nehru really did not give the country the full picture of what was happening. That's why surprises happen, nasty surprises happen. And that's why we are supposed to be different from China, that we're a democracy where these things are, you know, people are brought into confidence on some issues. Here we have a situation where if you put out a story, uh, more time is spent in trying to discredit you then mm, is in looking right? at Your the intentions. story and saying, "Excuse me, is this story correct or not?" Right. I, I, I see this happening on a daily basis. That all all kinds of you know sort of clarifications and every kind of government response doesn't actually deal with the facts of a story. We all deal with what's wrong with the person putting well, that
1: bef- story. Up? I'd say b- before one points fingers at the government, one would just have to point fingers at one's own fraternity that the journalists don't oh, even absolutely. ask the questions. That I mean, when I see because while I think uh, newspapers and print journalism still has the credibility that news should have, uh, the impact is great in prime time. I mean, for for good or bad, and there you don't see the guys even ask the questions. That, that that's tragic. I
2: absolutely- Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm referring just to what Anand said, which is that, you know, that, uh, that people come out saying, oh, they, the, the report against uh, on India being dropped from the Iranian railway line is false. That's the easy thing to say. What exactly is Iran saying? Iran is saying, no, India was never a part of the deal. I think we should be worried about that. I think other journalists should go and ask those questions. Instead, it's just about, no, I'm sorry, this report was inconvenient. Let's forget it. Let's move on. That's what's happened with so many of the journalists talking about China.
1: I think even though on the Sachin story, that is, and we'll discuss that going forward. But just one more foreign policy issue before I just open it to something that I would like the whole panel to weigh in on you know uh, uh, and and just quickly so i think 2 or 3 years ago i had read this piece on this one road one belt or tha na china ka right which was supposed yes. to go right across pakistan afghanistan whatever and i had read a piece actually this was a i think an npr that the next lehman crisis could be triggered in china because the kind of high risk zones where this or oh, one road one belt is passing through some of these places are Taliban controls Some of these places are completely tribal areas of Pakistan where no government has any influence. So China can't buy their silence, although it's trying. And I think there was a couple of Chinese banks that were leveraged to like $50 billion, $60 billion yeah, sure. to make this happen. And if that project fell, they'd say the Lehman equivalent would start in China. Now, I know that The Economist has in the past, The Time magazine has in the past, Try to discredit China's economy as early as, you know, 2000, 2001. That's, I mean, there are bigger things involved. But where is that one road, one belt? I don't read much about it. Is it going as per plan? Is, are the banks who are financing it robust? Is it going to change the entire economic situation and make China the driver of much of the non-US area, of non- anything other than the Americas?
2: Um, Well, I I mean, uh, I'm sure Anand wants to weigh in on this as well. China's Belt and Road Initiative is clearly what some people would say is biting off more than China could chew. Such an ambitious uh, plan at a time when the world was actually shrinking, the economy was actually shrinking around the world. Uh, But they did get about 60, I think 60-odd countries on board with that uh, uh, with that plan. And they have been able to at least start projects in various places. Now, obviously, uh, one of the problems is going to be funding. Uh, and uh, you're right that uh, many of the projects, the money has not come through. I'll give you the example of Iran again. The deal that uh, China is apparently uh, negotiating with Tehran is for a $400 billion, 25 year, strategic partnership deal. This will include infrastructure projects, oil projects, as well as banking, commercial interests, and all the rest of that. Now, $400 billion uh, may not seem a large amount if you're just talking about uh, China's investment in one country. But then think about it. If they are doing that with 30, 40 other countries, uh, then at some point, China is going to have to get a return on this investment. At present, what we've seen is China's lines of connectivity are essentially about securing oil resources, energy resources, and of exporting Chinese goods uh, to the rest of the world. We're not yet seeing the you know the, the other part of the trade, people being able to export uh, uh, goods to China, for example. Uh, I always give this example because I saw this uh, with my own eyes in 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 one dry dock in in uh, Xinjiang province where. Uh, there was an entire train of ketchup being shipped from China—not shipped, but by train. Ketchup going as all in all sauce. Tomato ketchup Achcha. or tomato <laughs> tomato puree tomato sauce uh-huh. going yeah. from China to Italy, and this was Whoa. the first train, um, you know, going from 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 uh, a place near Rumchi to uh, to Naples. Now, when you think about that. China is exporting tomato, uh, so think about it next time you have your pasta pomodoro or whatever, to Italy. (laughs) But what is Italy sending back to China? Not much. So unless you've got a full trade uh, cycle going, this is going to be a very unequal relationship. Eventually, it will not hold. As far as China's investments go, uh, look at the case with Pakistan, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, uh, where billions of dollars have already come in, certainly not as much as China had promised to start with. And uh, at some point, these billions of dollars are going to have to give China a little more than the comfort of having, you know, got one more friend, they are going to have to pay back. And when they don't, when they're not able to pay back, you see the situation in Sri Lanka, where eventually, according to the deal, Sri Lanka had to hand over. A port yeah to, uh, Chinese control because they couldn't pay back the loans so these, this is why uh, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is of concern to the rest of the world but it's also eventually you're quite right will, will be of concern to China itself.
1: What do you, Anand do you want to weigh in on this one road one belt is it potentially the next Lehman trigger that will make Chinese banks collapse or will it go through or will some person blow it up somewhere in the middle?
0: I think the financial aspects of it,
1: um, Swasni has explained,
0: that at some point it has to be a two-way traffic. If it doesn't, then it would uh, unleash its own set of anxieties. That is one part. Lehman, that is still speculative whether it would happen or not. But uh, just briefly, I think one of the ways of seeing it build um, this road initiative is also that... uh, the Middle Kingdom philosophy, if say of uh, greater influence over the world. Now, if in 2020 it is trying to replicate, say, in the post Second World War, say, uh, the both camps, Warsaw or NATO, or some kind of broad alliance of nations, say, glued together with a certain kind of uh, military philosophy or a security philosophy or something. But that was backed by some kind of military strength swing in real situations. Mind it that China, with all its power, with its all-economic muscle, after 1979, when it Uh, was part of UN peacekeeping force in Vietnam, has not showed any direct combat experience on a large scale. So it has a kind of, say, a deficit in real military exercise, uh, in real situations. That that has its own military anxieties. And the only lever through which it is pushing its, say, hegemonic designs, is through... It's a economic uh, larger kind of alliance, and it's muscle showing, and through these kind of pacts and alliances. So, I think when the combination is not both, with all its string of pearls and this and that, and South China Sea aggression, and this, I think the lack of real combative uh, um, so of a strength has to be compensated with other initiatives, other initiatives which are very, very grand, like uh, this built and road and this. If it doesn't succeed, if it doesn't succeed, it, it's a roadblock in its uh, hesemanic uh, designs. And uh, replicating on the uh, that the uh, post post uh, second World War military alliances in 2020 with a, in a different international scenario. I think uh, it would be interesting to see. Uh, We should not have a premature guess about it, but see what happens.
1: Right. So um, I'm just going to read out a couple of emails. Thank you for that, uh, guys. I hope our audience is happy with our foreign policy discussion because they have often asked for specific things to be explained a little more detailed. Now, uh, just to give Anand and Sohasini a context of the emails I'm reading. Last week, I had commented on something called safetyism. Are you... Familiar with it? I, I was made familiar with the concept the week before last, actually. Oh, are you, yeah. are, I'm
2: just getting up to speed with cancel culture. What is safetyism?
1: Yeah, so safetyism yeah. basically is, <laughs> is related. It's close. It's it's the expectation of the millennial to be in an post-millennial. environment... Post-millennial. Post-millennial, millennial, Joby, yeah, to be in an environment where nothing that is said should quote-unquote trigger them. Uh, they should not have to listen to anything that is unpleasant, maybe I'm saying this from the Gen X uncle point of view, but basically that anything can be called triggering or toxic. And because of that, a cancel culture is one of the fallouts of that. And it's the safetyism, while the millennial thinks he or she is standing up for liberal values, it is exactly the antithesis of liberal values of not wanting to even be exposed to ideas that could again, quote unquote, trigger you or make you feel that you're in a toxic environment. So Based on that, I've got a bunch of mails. I'm just going to read them out. And then I just like, you know, the panel's views on this. Because last time, we just kind of discussed it in passing. So the first email on this is by Uday. Uday says, hello panel. First of all, I feel proud that I'm supporting such a spirited, accurate and nuanced platform of discussion as Hafta. After seeing many American outlets like Vox, CNN caving in, I was heartened that Abhinandan and Co stood up for classic liberal values and upheld the ethos of freedom of speech. Since he often feels anxious about his views make him sound like an uncle, I'd like to reassure Abhinandan that he sounds nothing but a reasonable person who favors a society supporting an open exchange of ideas without malice and where mere thoughts don't count as egregious egregious. Sorry, injustice or violence. As someone more than 20 years younger than him, I'd like to say that there are enough among my friends who disagree on many things but also hold the spirit of free discussion itself as a value that all of us should aspire to. And thus support Harper's letter. Hashtag not all millennials. Mm -hmm. If believing in such rational and universal values makes one an uncle, then so fucking be it. Because I'm tired of too much equivocation and if-but-tish hush-hushing around the issue. A bouquet from my generation to his. As a fellow fan of Rushdie, I was surprised Abhinandan didn't mention him as one of the signatories of the letter too. I wrote in to dispel three crucial things that critics of the letter allege. Since I've got a bad feeling that someone else will write to you, bringing about these very points against the letter. One, it's not about whether free speech is absolute or not. Nowhere does the letter mention that free speech means the right to call the N word or casteist slurs. The letter was not debating if free speech is absolute or not, which would take a long time to settle. And nor did it say that the speech itself was above critique, and those objecting to it oppose free speech. It was rather a of a certain mood of taboo and silence setting in whenever things got morally complicated and most importantly that people were either losing their jobs or their positions were made suspect simply because they chose to espouse rather than anodyne opinions. Two, the signees are not all elite white men. They include Iranian women, professors who escaped from the Iranian Khomeini revolution, black women, women like Anne Applebaum and Gloria Stein Steinem, Asian journalist Lee Fang, who was nearly fired for being racist. Yeah,
3: that case was really bizarre. And arguably the
1: greatest novelist India has produced, which I'm guessing you're talking about, Rushdie. The letter was in fact started by a black columnist named Thomas Chatterton Williams, who was also targeted on Twitter for betrayal. I think the thing which really Mm. spooked the neoliberal woke police was the realization that not all white people think alike, that they have individual agency to think for themselves, and they can't be constrained to their group identity like herd of sheep. The horror, the horror of individuality. Three, ideas are not violence, and there should be no ideological safe space. In campuses of especially private universities, this dangerous concept of safety is mis-spreading. I work in one, so I speak from experience. A trans Vox employee complained on Twitter that her colleague signing the letter made her feel unsafe, and some even had the chutzpah to say that no signee had undergone anything like censorship or violence. Forgetting Rushdie, Gary Kasparov, and many others who had not only been censored, but exiled, jailed, or threatened. Such warped ideas about what violence is amuses me. Even if Rowling's ideas are reprehensible, the best way to defang them is to show their ridiculousness out in the open. This issue would have been long over if someone were to just to fact-check her writing and dismantle each of her arguments. I thought Manisha, Mehraj, and Raman sir, navigated the issue very reasonably and responsibly. Since Mehraj and Manisha had recommended Matt Taibi earlier, I'd also suggest his latest piece on this letter to you and all listeners also linking here in the session understanding of free speech by norm chomsky himself which has been doing the rounds so this is Uday's view i just have one more email to read and then i would like to get the panel's view this view is not similar to Uday's. this is webhav webhav says way to kick the hornets nest you guys i'm sure you will receive a ton of emails br- and pro and against your views so i'll try to keep mine brief i will keep and break it down into three points one cancel culture is not a new phenomena For generations, people have been cancelling and shaming people on the margins of society. For example, let us consider America in the 19th century. When Jim Crow was the law of the land, black people protesting for equal rights were shunned. At the same time, white people who worked for civil rights faced boycotts of their businesses, as seen here. And there is a link to a piece on PBS. Then the Sovereignty Commission contributed funds to the citizen councils and formed a covert network that tracked blacks and whites. Blacks in favor of integration are seen... Trying to register black voters would lose their jobs, their homes, even their lives. White businessmen would face boycotts and politicians would lose votes if they were believed to be sympathetic to African-Americans' efforts at integration. Two, who gets cancelled? In the past, the existing power structure suppressed and intimidated people who were trying to speak for the oppressed. Right now, that has reversed. Those who oppose the fundamental right of people are facing a backlash by those who have gained rights. Thanks to social media, it is much easier to point out hatred and correct it. Three, J.K. Rowling, so I was puzzled by your painting of Rowling as a victim being quieted for expressing an opinion. The problem is this was not her first time. She has been consistently shown, she has consistently been showing transphobic views and has been allowed to correct the record. She had a chance to learn and she has decided not to take it. She funds campaigns that are hurtful to people. Her latest diatribe about trans people would be the last straw and has led many people to demand she not be patronized. Money paid to her goes to causes that harm people. In that case, why shouldn't people boycott her? Lastly, you mentioned ideas should be entertained and left to the marketplace of ideas. Are bhai, what is defeat in commonplace of ideas? Do we just keep listening to them again and again? Or do we say ki ho gaya bas karo ab? If they don't change, learn. Do we ignore them or let them face an economic backlash? Boycott of JK Rowling is the freest form of expression and an example of the marketplace of ideas deciding a winner. Because free speech does not mean you get to say whatever you like without retribution. All it means is you can say whatever you like and the government can... Not take action against you solely for speaking out. You can yell blacks who date whites must be lynched, and the government can't touch you. Again, a link has been provided to an ACLU piece. Can you be fired from your cushy job or have your books or have your books boycotted? Yell hell yeah. That's it for now. I can obviously go on and on. I purposely chose Western examples because cancel culture and free speech have only truly taken hold in more developed economies, democracies. India has not really cancelled anyone for Islamophobia or casteist bigotry, nor do we have free speech. This issue is not really important in India. Note, trigger warnings is something completely different and not related to cancel culture. Asking you to be sensitive about minorities in the workplace or public is a reflection of increased sensitivities. For example, would it be appropriate for you to joke about rape when someone around you has been raped? Pay note about Washington being judged too harshly, harshly saying that values were different back then is not right. His colleges were abolitionists. The reason him and many others engaged in human trafficking were economic Maybe if cancel culture had existed back then, slavery would have been abolished earlier. P.S. The anger and agitation Abhinandan, when he talked about soft millennials being squishy and sensitive, was quite something. It was almost like he was, what's the word, triggered. So Webhav, thank you for it. I've received many other mails on this, which I shall read a little later. Maybe we'll publish some of them because they have been very well articulated. Hey Webb, I'm not triggered. I'm happy to discuss this. I'd like people to talk about this all the time. I won't tell you not to say this because it triggers me. I love being triggered. I will not say, oh, this upsets me, so don't say it. Fuck, say it, it upsets me, upset me. I love being upset. And cancel culture and this whole trigger thing, I think, are related. They are not the same thing, I agree.
3: Also, I mean, he's making a bit of an exaggeration. A rape jokes are not something you go around cracking. It's not like i was like, hey, what's the new rape joke you have for me today? Mm. So anyway, it's not something we have come to an understanding that certain jokes are crass. I'd say even like I find wife jokes really irritating sometimes when old mm. men. I mean, I won't I mean I just find them irritating. But it's different from saying that saying that, say, I have a colleague who's Muslim or I have a colleague who's upper caste, I have a colleague who's Buddhist, and I can't challenge, you know, questions about their religion or Or for example, Me Too, if you were to take the gender spectrum, then in Me Too, during the time of Me Too in 2018, it had become, uh, and you saw this in a lot of newsrooms, including ours, that the the dictum that believe her had become so strong that anyone who had even a smallest of question or query or skepticism about a case was just like, oh, you Tavleen Singh. Mm. Tavleen Singh was also, she'd become the epitome of, you know. Mm. So that is what I meant with when it came to trigger warning or reporting on stuff. Sure. I mean, of course, we know that. I mean, none of us want to crack rape jokes, anyways. Of course, it's not like. No, I mean,
5: those who advocate for free speech. Yeah. I don't think they talk about it in absolute terms. The issue uh,
3: here is more challenging I mean, your the beliefs that you hold. Yeah. You know, my belief yeah. in, in me too, or my belief in a particular kind of a philosophy.
1: So, yeah, Maharaj, you want to come in on that? I mean, uh, and and I just like to say, Webbav, uh, it was a little more nuanced. One is not saying that one can say this, so therefore one should be allowed to say this. One can. Say that, sure, rape jokes are offensive and I think we've moved way beyond that. But I think the equivalence you draw and this is the biggest flaw in your thesis. A rape joke is the same as me saying that I don't get the gender fluidity thing that today I feel like a woman and tomorrow I feel like a man. I don't get it. I get a rape, you know, what rape is. So one important
4: point that was pointed out is this lack of perspective so when we talk about these things people like us i mean privileged people who have a voice who have a platform to voice our views so when we talk about these things we kind of tend to like narrow our gaze and just forget what is happening elsewhere so this insistent focus on cancel culture there's this writer who has the new york times open to him he can write and then somebody says something to him and he's triggered or whatever in this country, like Vaibo also pointed out, just this, are you're talking about safetyism, for example, on campus. Just this week, there was this story from UP where in a residential school, minor boys were raped by the teachers. And they have to suffer. They still are in that school because their parents back in Assam are too poor to come and take them home right now. Mm. So those we shouldn't lose perspectives of things. When we are talking about this person doesn't have absolute free speech and he's trying to insult somebody and we're getting triggered by it. Those are important debates, no less. But this perspective is important. When in a in a country, for example, in India, try talking about Kashmir in a way that doesn't conform to the majority opinion mm. or the government's mm. opinion. Try Try talking about army. Mm. In this country, journalists have been killed jailed right now journalists are are being like questioned and jailed and everything so when we are talking about these things we should have this perspective in mind these are important debates but this is also there so this isn't just like somebody was somebody wrote a racist creed in a newspaper Mm. and he's being cancelled yes of course do that
1: sure absolutely
4: agitate against that yeah but make sure that the foundations i mean if the foundations are this rotten then you, some privileged person who writes an opinion piece in a newspaper and then you get the whole discussion is about that. Hmm. That kind of defeats the purpose.
3: But then Meira, don't you think they're two different things because in India there'll always be someone worse off than you, always be someone who's going through hell, not in the same way as you are. But that can't mean that I can't talk about issues which are privileged. No, of course, I mean? they're like, important. I mean, like they I, I said, they will always be
4: they're important. Terrible. That's what I started saying. They are important, but that those shouldn't overshadow the more real problems
1: there are.
3: I just think there are different problems. I don't know real and real because of course, when I look at the broader thing, cancel culture is really minuscule. I mean, in
5: I think it's more a trend thing. Sorry, sir, so go ahead. No, no, I said one problem does not make another Bigger or lesser. Mm-hmm. Not at all. See, and the problems this, are is, problems
4: this is how privilege works. For example, mm-hmm. we did this story about this UP has been going after journalists like left, right and center. The only time there was outrage was when they went after Siddharth Vardarajan or Supriya, Supriya Sharma. Yeah. Hmm. More journalists,
1: local journalists have had to face worse. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, but that, yes. but yeah, but that's something we pointed out at I think every media rumble. But I mean, what, what I'm, I'm saying is that I, I don't think it's okay, but it's an inevitability. I think that I personally don't like spending too much time discussing inevitabilities. Because, and that's not true. Uh, minor disagreement, with Manisha, it's not true for India that there'll always be someone worse off. It's true for anywhere in the world. It's true for Norway and Austria also. Like today I was seeing in the BBC, bullet in the morning, Austria, this guy who's contesting whatever prime minister, president, I don't know, I don't know what's to What's to Austria? Chancellor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think it's the, yeah. Uh...
2: Uh,
1: Chancellor. So the person who's contesting... <laughs> is uh, basically saying that we are paying too much for, um, you know... Migrants. Migrants or uh, we have to get something back. So there's a divide in Austria on that. And one of the person, in fact, she was a makeup artist. She says, we are such a rich country. You know, I don't know why we are making such a big deal, but we have to contribute a little more to EU. So what I'm saying is even in Austria, there is someone who's worse off than you because the person saying that I'm a farmer, I'm struggling. COVID has ruined my crop. Now, that farmer is probably living a life better than me but I'm saying that is true for any country but Mani, uh, sorry um, by the so way, I been, just, uh,
2: just to add the Google alert, it's the president it's the president, anyone. okay
1: <laughs> so uh, on this whole, now I guess you got to get an idea of what our discussion was last time and the various people weighing in on this, uh, you want to comment on this and just one more uh, mail I've got, I'm not reading the whole mail, this person is mail saying that, you know, she is maybe not Maya and Sohasini's generation, maybe she's Maharaj and Manisha's generation she was saying I have a problem with people who are reporting to me someone wanted to take a day off after Sushant Singh Rajput died. So I was like, why? She says, no, I just want to deal with that. So she says, I couldn't say no because, you know, you're scared. Ki she says, did you know him? No, I didn't know him. He was a star to me, but it has triggered me. So I need to take a day off to deal with but it. But is
3: she dealing with some sort of depression? I don't know. Something? But
1: the point is that that's and the fact that she didn't have the guts to say no, like, <laughs> what the fuck do you need a day off? I mean, you don't even know this guy. <laughs> but you can't say that because today the expectation is that I can get triggered because of something I see. So I so I think that's a different thing from a rape joke. And this is something that, honestly, I am having a problem dealing with. I don't understand it.
2: You know, the, the truth is that we are living in a world where your personal and your professional and your societal views are all out there in the open. They have more platforms than ever before. So one of the things we need to do is, you know, I don't know if it's possible to decouple, But to understand that essentially a lot of the things that you just mentioned that people have a problem with or people don't have a problem with are interpersonal relationships. After all, if if this boss has a problem with the employee taking a day off, uh, would it be possible to relook at whether that's something that needs to be decided between within organizations without this necessarily being. A, a, a public debate. There are some organizations, for example, who will give you paternal leave, uh, some who will give you less or will be more un, uh, more understanding or less understanding because, of course, there are laws about these things. Um, similarly, when it comes to the more serious issue, if you ask me, of criminality, when someone threatens criminality, threatens rape, threatens murder, the truth is that we, we do have to look at it in a much more clinical manner than we do right now. What ends up happening is somebody says something. The reaction to that becomes 2,000 times something. And then what ends up happening is then there is a backlash to that backlash. Eventually, the two people who are, you know, arguing about this are the two people who are essentially removed from the actual debate. I think what happened with this particular rape case, for example, or the rape threat, alleged rape threat, because now we have the apology that says I said rape, but I didn't mean it, is essentially uh, the the person who was given the threat went to the police, police took action. I think we need to look at it as facts. This is what happened. If we make everything into an issue about, you know, uh, and and eventually it just becomes reductive because it it ends up being you're liberal, you're right-wing, you're left-wing, and, and then the debate has nothing to do with the actual fact. But if you keep going back to the original debate and say, is this an interpersonal relationship? Is this something that needs to be discussed at an organizational level? And then is it something that we need to decide at a societal level? I think all of these lines have gotten mixed up essentially because of uh, because of uh, 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 you know social media and where it's going. And eventually, I think we are going to have to Maybe work new compacts, i.e. you do not say things that are, you know, just the way you look at a social media, uh, a social platform like, say, Twitter, they have new rules, right? Where uh, uh, they say we will not accept a comment that says this, this, or this. Is this not, is this aimed at a community? Everybody has to make those rules. You Make those rules personally and you make those rules societally. I, I think what's actually lost, if you like, and this is now, I don't want to come into this argument with my own rant, but I think what's getting really lost is the ability to engage. I'm not right. even saying that there should be a middle ground because some things are just right and wrong. Yes. Um, I'm I'm saying that the ability to engage without this necessarily becoming, you know, a three generational war, mm. um, that's getting lost in every one of these debates, just like the debate you right now had, whether that person should have been given leave because uh, she was so distraught about something that had happened to someone she didn't even know or not is the factor of a debate. I mean, how many personal days does she have? What is the company's policy on these things? These things can actually be discussed. They don't have to be reduced to essentially, you know, my way or nothing.
5: Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, Anand, that come to you. Raman had something no, to add. No, no. I, I mean, the. you gave one instance of this girl mm. who got affected. In fact, I know people who have got affected and who had no idea of... They had not even seen his movies. Hmm. Uh, like my son. Hmm. He lives in Boston. And uh, for next two weeks, he did nothing but watching his interviews. All of his interviews. And he was discussing his interview. How intelligent he was. And that how,
3: even I did. Uh, but I mean, I didn't need people. a holiday for it. Uh, like, I didn't need so, time so, off
5: so, from so, work to do so, it. So, so, I mean, at, at one point I said, why why so, you have to concentrate <laughs> so I mean,
1: yeah, well, I mean, being affected is a different. Thing. Like, I liked Saroj Khan, but until she died, I didn't bother seeing a documentary on her. Once I saw the documentary on her, I my respect for her went up and her death became more tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, but that, that's a different thing. Anand, you want to come in on this whole safetyism as an illiberal concept or is it consistent with liberal values?
0: Okay, just two brief points on this um, cancel culture and what you call the
1: safetyism.
0: First, it is amusing because. With the short life we have, uh, people so sure of what is purpose of life and what we should be doing and not doing it is really amusing that uh, what uh, if I say so, my life is meaningless. If if someone said this, he, it is meaningful. So as if being something is the sole purpose of something. People are not like that. So uh, that is why, uh, as someone said, that cancel culture would be just a fad. Fad, uh, it would be a kind of, uh, say, a culture of a few because people are, most of the people are essentially private people. They are not very public spirited, not uh, even. Even though though uh, for a living I write on public issues and public affairs, I am essentially not very interested in public affairs, not public issues. I'm not interested. And most of the people are like this, who are not interested. They have some views, they have something. And that is also my problem with uh, saying something as love and hate, because these are very stark words, and they give you a kind of moral if you accuse someone of hate, okay. Because these are very identifiable words, even, say, someone not so well-educated knows what... Uh, he has imbibed what hate means, what love means. More synonymous words uh, with uh, less... Uh, even if they have more impact, like, say, bile, malice, or, say, a kind of spite now that would be the thing but uh, this morally unassailable concepts like love hate and cancel him cancel that he should not be allowed he should be allowed it gives a kind it's a very arrogant kind of air to things. second thing is that there is also this uh, kind of uh, you say simple templates applied I means some like uh, uh, someone writing on India from very far away in say, Europe or America now, he writes with certain templates of, uh, say, like this is discrimination, this is not, this is, this, this is the decisive factor. And when I see their right, Indians uh, far away in say, Delhi, Mumbai, writing on some remote places in India about an event, The templates are same of, say, one of the factors being the overriding factor, say caste, community, or some kind of this and that. But uh, as Suhashni was pointing out, the, the ground situation may be more complex. That would be one of the factors, but not the overriding factor, or may not be even an important factor in a particular situation. So you need to be more patient with facts, more patient with the actual issue at hand and not be very lazy with applying
4: templates. That's it. Just to add to Anand's point about this templates. that's a very important point. This is a tendency that we use these, for example, cancel culture. This debate is happening in a particular context, American context, Western mm-hmm. context. Then we transpose it to say Indian context without looking at the, context we are talking about this that becomes problematic similar thing happens say for example when those statues were pulled down the power dynamic what the power dynamic is there we talk about it in Indian context without looking at the power dynamic for example there the demand to pull down the statues is from people who were oppressed who are now trying to gain power and they're they're against people who have always had power and they're trying to bring equality. In Indian context, for example, if the same thing, say for example, the Babri Masjid, the people who pulled it down are the people who already have the power against people who don't have the power. So that's a completely different context. Hmm. These, when we talk about in these journal terms, like uh, Anand said, use these same templates for every context Mm, and then we land up in problems and then we just mess up up Mm everything.
3: I just want to add that I think Sabrimala case could be a good way of understanding the cancel culture phenomena. Here's a case that for I at least wasn't sure whether the Supreme Court should have interfered or not. And uh when you're a writer or you're some or a journalist in a public life, there are two things that cancel culture can do that this is not a black and white issue, right? I could think that Supreme Court shouldn't have interfered, and maybe this is something that people have to decide for themselves. but I would not fear say I would fear saying that because I'd be immediately dubbed as an anti feminist or as a backward person or this upper caste you know perpetuator of uh, tyranny so that and I think the other aspect in cancel culture is this applause group, and for better or for worse, we are on Twitter and social media, and a lot of our worth Today, we judge by how many people share our pieces, how many people mm. praise us on Twitter. I think one of the finest pieces that Mihir Sharma wrote on was on Sabrimala against the judgment. Not against the judgment, but he was arguing the same point that maybe the court shouldn't have interfered. Mm. And that piece barely got any traction versus a piece where he'd probably talk about Modi and how terrible he is. So I think what his canc- grouping expects exactly. him to... Mm. So th- the problem with cancel culture also is that then it kills innovative thought. It kills uh, a writer's uh, you know it kills this aspect in a writer where you want to go beyond what's already being said to say something new for fear of upsetting someone. So I think those are the two important aspects of and also that culture. a being put in a bracket that you don't I don't want to be seen as an anti-feminist, right, but I'll be scared of saying something that because I think, oh shit, five of my peers would think i'm I'm not a feminist and also. So-
1: the pressure of having to weigh in on something that you really don't really have a view on, that you have to have a view on something. But
3: that I have given up on. I mean, at least I think, and I think a lot of journalists should do that also. And it's, I mean, it's quite remarkable that Sohasni also said that in the beginning that I only weigh in on foreign policy issues. I really think more and more journalists should just not feel the pressure to weigh in on everything and just talk about what you know about. That's a okay. really good habit. <laughs>
4: okay. And it puts
3: you in less trouble. In the time
4: of social media, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> yeah. But also, one important point, one great danger of this trend, of this cancel culture is that over time, you become self-censoring. Hmm. And
1: self-cens- there is no greater danger threat than to free yeah. thought than self-censorship. Yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. It, it changes behavior. So, Hassani, Anand, you want to come in on this? I have a couple of emails and So, has to leave us. I know she won't want to weigh in on Sachin and other such. So, (laughs) she might want to leave us with a couple of recommendations. So, Hassani, what do you have for us? Uh, Do you want to weigh in on Sachin, by the way? Before I assume, why should I censor your thoughts? To
2: the point (laughs) that uh, I've already said, I think we need to just look at the facts and allow facts to play out. We seem to already have labelled and the amount of labelling that is going on in terms of uh, you know uh, if you if you support one side then you're a dynast if you support the other side you're not just a dynast you're a lutyens liberal you're an english speaker you're a hindi speaker <laughs> you're good looking you're not good looking i mean the the way this <laughs> essentially in party political crisis has become something that defines the person having an opinion about it is really, I mean, it's something we all need to take a a step back from. But honestly, I I, I completely back up what I said earlier, which is that if I don't really know something uh, about it, I I think uh, best to leave my opinions out of it in terms of uh, recommendations. uh, I I just say that, you know, the uh, last few months with uh, as far as India and China are concerned, and even now with Iran, what ends up happening is we are now looking at foreign policy just as an event-driven exercise. And so my recommendation is uh, it's necessary to go back and read. There are so many books on India and China that you could read, which are not just about India, China, but you know, triangular exercises. So there are two books that are specifically about India, China, and the US. One by a journalist called Martin Seifer, another by Tanvi Madan, who's in Washington. Uh, and has written an excellent book uh, uh, about uh, in in India, China, and the U.S.'s relationships. And and last uh, recommendation for a book is something by Ambassador P. Subban on the Great Game in the Buddhist Himalayas, because so much of this is linked not just to the international world, but to the countries that uh, countries and states that are on the actual periphery between India and China. So it's about Ladakh, it's about Sikkim, it's about Bhutan. It's about Arunachal Pradesh and Nepal. All of these have come into focus because of the India-China situation. So, so uh, those are my recommendations.
1: Thank you so much, Asini. We've kept you for longer than we had. Always promised. a pleasure,
2: Abhinandan. Thanks so much, and thanks so much for inviting me to um, uh, to discuss. These issues which, as you said, sometimes uh, get put by the wayside with all the politics of the day.
1: Our pleasure. And I'm sure our subscribers will be thrilled. So guys, see, we get you such amazing guests. Keep on the love and the subscription that you send us, even though the Hafta is not behind the paywall for the next four weeks. Okay, thanks, Rasini. Have a good weekend. Yeah.
2: You too.
1: Before I continue on to Sachin, I had another two mails. Can I just request my uh, producer, Aditya, all the safeties are mails. Let's just publish them as one piece. This week, because they are all so well articulated, even the ones that agree with me and disagree. I mean, I think all of them have made some, I think on one page, let's just have one page, people can read them all together. Now, this one is a way more nuanced one. And although, um, Manjuri, you have said, I'll just write what I'll read what you've said. You said, I'd appreciate you reading the letter yourself. I don't mind if you don't read it out on next hafta. So, I guess that means that you don't mind if I do either, right? Yeah. So, yeah. it's not like I'm breaching a trust by reading out her mail. Look she at has... you being so
3: cautious. I thought you didn't care.
1: <laughs> no, I'm just... I just want to be... No, no, I think she's... I
3: mean, so, she, it says, she I don't is... mind
1: if you don't read it out. Ah, so, that's fine. So, that's fine. So, Manjri has actually, um, I think, kind of put a way more nuanced position than the earlier two mails. Hi, I'm writing to to commend you on your free speech discussion last hafta. I felt that nuanced arguments were made and admire how Abhinandan has shown an open mind exploring ideas and changing his opinions in some instances. I totally agree that a society needs to allow robust debate and multiple perspectives. But I'm wondering if snowflakes slash safetyism, slash cancel culture quote unquote trends actually exist. I defined that these trends exist if they are being practiced by a not insignificant minority and which are a bigger proportion of the population than previous generations, which is what I think uh, Maharaj is saying. I'm not convinced yet because, one, India and US slash UK are very different cultures, at different stages in their cultural evolution, but linked by Twitter. I don't think both could be at the same point on cancel culture. I don't see any proof that millennials and Gen Z are specifically soft. This sounds like a right-wing theory to complain when told not to be racist or sexist. Two, Merely replying with energy isn't cancel culture. Neither is it cancel culture for Harry Potter fan sites to say they won't link to Rowling's website. So won't promote her personally, only her work. She is saying what she wants. They are saying that they don't agree. I think that qualifies as free speech. People losing their jobs, say for a tweet, expressing could qualify. How many such cases are there? Are there enough to form a culture? Is it also cancel culture to advise people to not watch TV news? when people are ostracized by fellow villagers like when an ancestor of mine was when he decided to educate his daughters if people refuse to discuss a reasonable subject without reason i call it stupid culture and that isn't new also i'm reading rereading annihilation of caste i smell some parallels with how caste is ignored by upper castes and how white people don't want to discuss racism as discussed in white fragility video, I'd recommend the video to Maharaj. Oh, thank you. So Manjari, I thought she made some very, very valid yeah. points, which is for me at least hard to disagree with. There is one more email on this cancel culture which is also very articulate. I don't know whether I'm going over the top on emails, but there's. I just think that they may have smarter things to say than us. So I don't know, No disrespect to my panel, but i just like to read one more, then I'd get back to the panel. There's one mail specifically for Anand, which I'll give Anand all the time in the world to uh, Anand, I haven't read the full her counter to your piece. I hope you have. Yes, I have. I, so I... I'll, I'll, Sorry, I'll just come to that. There was just one more email on cancel culture before we come to that. So this email is from Dhiraj. I guess your safetyism discussion with my email had me want to put one more point in. Disclaimer, I'm not a parent. The point is, simply look at how kids are being parented now and before. Me as a kid did not have me messaging my mom that I am safe every hour or so. It's not really just... One gender, it's like across genders these days. Tech allows you to see where they are almost every millisecond. Point being, if kids are put into an incredibly safe space, don't do this and that. It's a no-brainer. They are going to live in a bubble where anything they deem unsafe is not worth hearing. To make an absolutely crude comment, the umbilical cord is never really cut. Metaphorically, the cord is the safety. It's quite obvious where the safetyism culture comes from. Gen X, Y Millennial Parenting. So it's the parenting that's at fault is what Dheeraj is saying. Now, I know if you end up reading this on Hafta, beware, you're going to get a lot of flack from parents for allowing this view from a non-parent. What experience do I have? Something like this Russell Peters skit, somebody gonna get hurt real bad. Uh, So that's Dheeraj weighing in. Uh, we have a couple others. So, we'll be publishing all the safetyism mails as one mail.
4: So, what we can do is when we publish the Hafta letters on this thing, yeah. we'll bunch all these together and then we'll publish the rest of them.
1: Yes, yeah, let's do that. Or
3: maybe you can put it up separately, you know, On a separate post.
1: Or we can, yeah, or separate safetyism, like you know? Safety. Uh, yeah, we can do that. Uh, news Laundry subscribers weigh in on cool. safetyism. I think we can. And we can link the Hafta to that. All right. Mm. So, I'll just first get to um, uh, Mr. Uh, what's his name? Sachin Pilot. Then we'll come to Anand's mail. Let's just break the mail. So, context those of you who have been living under rock, Sachin Pilot suddenly went incognito. There were all sorts of rumblings that he's going to leave the party, he'll topple the Rajasthan government. He had claimed he has 30 MLAs, apparently, he has 15, 20. Even as of now, he doesn't have the numbers to take down the government. Or
3: to bargain a CM post for himself.
1: Or bargain a CM post, which has been outright rejected. Mr. Chief Minister came and said this. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Meanwhile, Sachin said nothing because I think he was supposed to have a press conference, but he realized he doesn't
1: have numbers he'll have egg on his face. Now there's this joke that's going around on Twitter that sources say that. Sachin likes Kanda and Rahul likes Adrak or whatever. It's become this joke that sources say, "sab kuch bhi pale rahe." So for two days, this was like 24-hour coverage.
3: For the first time, we had something besides China or coronavirus. Yes, and it was Congress mega failure hit, being a party. <laughs>
1: so, so now this has led to you know what we are discussing that people have to win. Either you are on Sachin team, Sachin or team Gahlot. And if you criticize Sachin, you are assumed a team Gahlot. If you criticize Gahlot, you assume a team Sachin. And journalists, like Manisha said, are weighing in too heavily on one side. That's the context. Now, let me start with Anand. Anand, are you team Sachin? Because you are young and dynamic. Or are you on the <laughs> old side like us? Young and restless. Do you want to weigh in on this? How does this amuse you? Because I suspect it does. My feeling is
0: that this is a crisis triggered not by Sachin, Bayer, but by so Gellert. And uh, I may be speculating, but I think he... he wants to get him out of the way. And uh, in the recent Raj Sabha elections, he had pretext to do so and uh, get out of the way in the sense that uh, he wants uh, the succession story to begin in Rajasthan Congress. Rajasthan. And discrediting uh, Sachin in eyes of the say the Dynasts uh, in um, at uh, so uh, ten what is that Jan, ten Janpat.
1: Sorry, just to come in uh in context of what Anand is saying. In a public speech, Mr. Gehlot had accused Sachin of ensuring oh. his son's defeat in the Lok Sabha. Yeah, carry on, Anand.
0: Yes. So midway, it is uh, he is confident of uh, his number uh, numbers, and he. Uh, my feeling is that he triggered this crisis. Sachin Gehlot would have timed it a uh, little differently if he, it was his trigger. No,
1: Sachin not pilot Pilate did a divorce? Sorry, you said Sachin Gehlot. What do you mean Sachin oh, Pilate? Okay, okay. okay, Sachin Pilot.
0: Now, Congress now looks uh, more like uh, that old man in a family who is uh, means dreaded. The dreaded not for how dangerous it is he is now but who how dangerous it was once so uh, because you see unlike the old man in a family in a corner there is nothing called terminal decline in electoral politics uh, if you have organization that is few men and women who can work for you and if you have some money there is always a route to recovery and uh, that uh, Congress had around 11 crore 60 lakh votes in Lok last elections, and that is around 19.6% of votes, and it pulled 11 crore votes if you poll in a general election, you have some, I mean, some kind of support basis still. So it's not that it is not dangerous, and that's why the BJP has not lost sight of Congress. You cannot lose sight of a political party that has 11 crore votes in the country. And it is, it would be not surprising that after Mr. Gehlot's move, which I speculate it was his move, this crisis, BJP had sent some signals, uh, what uh, some Rajasthan-based journalists are writing, that uh, if you can say, cobble up some numbers, we, we can do something for you, if not in a frontal mode, then in a supporting role. role. That has apparently not materialized for Mr. Pilot. Yes, That is what I
1: read. Some, some bits of it is pure speculation. Which it always is in these discussions. Raman sir, what, what, do you, what is your view? Are you on Team Gahlot or Team Sachin?
5: No, as uh, Anand said, that Gahlot was the one who triggered it. What I feel that Sachin Pilot is the second generation uh, politician. Mm. His father died, uh, you know, very abruptly. Really young. it was he, he died in an accident, mm. and I think he was into his teens or he was barely out of his teens, mm-hmm. and uh, he really started from the scratch uh, that way, uh, second generation politician, and he he worked on the ground, and he built up, you know, uh, uh, his career as a politician now in rajasthan it is true that the galat galot was trying to cut him to you know his size so yeah. he was promoting a uh, gujar uh, you know netas against him you know who can who can just counter this his uh, you know influence Thatcher in the, in the, Gu- the gujar community so and uh, also uh, he was promoting his own son so galot was trying to really cut him to uh, you know size so uh, but but i think i think for him whether he had a support of 15 mlas or 20 mlas or more than 20 for him it was very important time to revolt because as deputy cm he was nobody he he was given no portfolios the, he hardly he was hardly functional so i think it was for him to revolt but at this but uh, whether he should go bjp way or congress way uh, i mean or or the congress brings him back with a formidable position He's not sure uh, sure of that. And BJP, naturally, t- they had to jump in. So they are trying to lure him to his uh, to their own side. But I think this juncture, uh, at this point, it was very important for pilot to revolt. And he has done that.
1: Okay, so you and Ananda are very boring, just saying. <laughs> Did you see that video of people telling drum boring, boring, so boring. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, Mehraj, you spiced it up, man. Team Sachin or team pilot, <laughs> but you know, Times now only saying the same thing to us I have this SMS safe, so times now called sir will you join us tonight for this is yesterday so th- yesterday I got a call sir so we are discussing on Sachin Pilot will you join it, it prime time I was like I don't really have anything of consequence to say to join you on prime time this, uh, on Sachin so please come I said no then today I got a text so please commit for tonight we will decide the subject later <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so suppose the subject is I don't know there's apparently some meteor or comet that's passing the earth na, have you heard once in 7000 years as in as fact a, we should mein... we should have a party to spot it it's supposed to be really beautiful you can see it in time lapse and all and once in 7000 years and comes so it's unlikely we'll see it again so I haven't responded to that text sir please commit for tonight at 8 o'clock we'll decide subject later so what this if you talk really about that comet we have
3: to do a story on this regulars if you, if, yeah, if um, you
1: talk about that comet what am I going to say should I just say yes and just the
4: world is going to end Let's party?
3: <laughs> okay, forget the panelists. What are these journalists doing? Like Navika and RSS full-time journalists. What do mm-hmm. they like? We'll decide in the evening and we'll just like say whatever. Book I mean, why, <laughs>
5: why are you encouraging us to take sides?
3: <laughs> Sir, I'm doing Rahul Shankar. That's my job.
4: Yeah, <laughs> So a couple of things that are like really serious and a couple of things that are very amusing. First amusing part is with this whole Sajjan pilot. I mean, this projection, the like the majority opinion is that sachin pilot is somehow deserving of this and he is doing this politics and he's allowed it and he's a victim why is an ashok gelot allowed his politics i mean he's also playing politics only right i mean th- there is no ideological battle here this guy is looking out for interest the other guy is also looking for interest but the other guy is like projected as this oppressor and this guy this kid who had everything handed to him on a silver platter, practically, and he is like a victim in this. That I find amusing. Second part is, I mean, more serious point is that Congress, as I've said before, is a dying party. But again, amusingly, it is still, in the real sense, the only national party in India, still. I mean, it's declining fast, but it's a national party. BJP, for all its dominance, is still only a Hindi heartland party. I mean, you see, for example, in Northeast, as soon as BJP loses power at the center, all those like governments it has in the northeast are gone except maybe in assam south except karnataka it doesn't have any presence all the other states also like say in punjab and jnk minimal presence so congress still has presence in all those places though it doesn't amount to much now so it has that the most important point aspect in this which people always tend to agree is all these political fights are projected, they're written about, they're talked about as these dramas, political dramas this guy played this game, this guy played this game. What it shows is the utter hollowness of the Indian politics at this point. This is a party this is a politician who has been railing against BJP all his life because of their ideology same with Cynthia and others and now tomorrow he might likely be in in the BJP so, what exactly is no. this? Please make clear. Yes, but I mean but we, we never know. know. Sindhya mm. said the same things. Mm. In Bengal, the BJP MLA who was found dead the other day, he was a communist until yeah. like a few years ago he and now he's it. with the BJP. Mm. So, if this ideology doesn't yeah, just, matter, if what you believe in
1: doesn't matter, if it's all because you'll get this power and that power, what does that say about Indian polity? Although the case of the, the clash between the Hindu right and the communists, uh, this was also, I think, kind of um, when we had olake on our podcast, he's done a lot of... Oleg is, I think now he's open. He's a he's a very good journalist. He's written a few books, which we have also featured on News Laundry. He said, at least in Kerala, because that's where he's from, it's like belonging to a gang. If you don't belong to a gang, and you have some sort of a political activism background, you will die. So suppose you belong to the gang of Al Pacino, and you fuck up with some of Al Pacino's men, then you can't say, I'm leaving the gang. They'll kill you. Then you have to go join Al Camino or whatever the fuck it is. So basically the RSS and CPI and Kerala at least are two gangs. So basically I asked him, is like, what kind of a place is this? that One day I'm a communist, the other day I'm bloody with the RSS. One day I'm an other day I'm... Like it's not even that we have very subtly we have joined with Vishwa Hindus Parishad. We communist. Chale he says because if you don't belong to one gang, you're fucked.
5: Yeah, ideological wholeness so is the part of uh, Indian political culture for a very long time. Hmm. Ideological, although, I mean, if you see the anti-defection law, the way people defect, so I think that is although, in 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 Rajasthan. I think why Gaylord? because he is a bigger power elite, and he is the one who's controlling the shot, sti- and he is trying to, uh,
1: you know. And he, but he's still the bigger party. I think one thing is, sir, I would disagree with you that he started off from scratch, Sachin. After Rajesh Rama Pilot was given that seat, she won. She stayed there in Dosa. And then once Sachin was of age, he contested. So that seat never left the family even after Rajesh Pala And died. as soon
4: as he reached the age, have you ever heard of any 26-year-old being given a that, that
1: that, that uh, mor- moron from Bangalore who keep that bigoted fool. The BJP person. Whatever. Yes, Manish. So sorry, this
4: thing you're saying about Kerala, it's the same thing with Bengal. I mean, I remember Scroll My did the series. So the people who are leaving communists for the BJP, they're leaving because they're afraid of the... Trend because Trenmol has the power and they're like... Uh, become this. So you gang have to lot. belong to a gang, basically. Yes. But again, I mean, if the only sort of affiliation to a party is because material interest,
1: hmm. it's a gang. Yeah, it's not... It yet doesn't yet. have
4: anything. I mean, that's like... If you really think about it, that is what is destroying this country from the inside out.
1: I mean, I think ideology is also because... Ideologically, I'm working on a podcast and I've interviewed some five, six people the strongest ideology people will stick to is the rss and that's the problem but but you can check that out on the, the podcast also again
4: without i mean the usual allegation of bringing caste into everything all these parties are dominated and all these people who are going across with parties are dominant caste people and it doesn't matter much to them. I mean, that Gujars aren't dominant in a, Rajasthan. Uh, yeah, it's only a little. In fact, but Gujars aren't,
1: Gujars aren't dominant small. in Rajasthan. Uh, in Rajasthan, they aren't a uh, dominant aren't. caste. Gujars aren't a dominant yeah. caste in Rajasthan. It's it's a no, a no, no,
4: i generally in India, I mean, when you. This ideological spectrum from, say, communist to BJP, it's very, very narrow for an upper caste person. It's very narrow. It doesn't make much
1: difference. Narrow, the word narrow always runs on That Bachchan's dialogue. You remember Namak Halal? Bhairav becomes Bhairav and kara becomes cano because the mind is very narrow. I know it makes no sense but I just thought I'd throw it in there. But I have done an, I mean it's the one interview I have enjoyed most. I will say this, I mean, not one of the, it is an interview I've done which is part of the, let's talk about RSS, about a young RSS worker who was part of the guys who went and brought down the Babri uh, Masjid and now he's an activist, Dalit activist who's hugely against the RSS and I haven't Spoken to such a well spoken, articulate guy. And basically, I said, What triggered your leaving? He says, Because when this whole thing, after we had, you know, risked our lives, because when we went and brought it down, we could have been buried with the rubble also, yeah. And other than that, the police cases and all. There was some RSS thing happening through the village, and he was the village in charge. So they came, you know, refreshed themselves in my house, and then they said, We pack it. And when they left, says one of my friends who accompanied them, told them they threw it away because they won't eat from your house because you're Dalit. Says that's when I realized that no matter what they say, we are just the. Canon fodder for them. It, I mean, it, it's an amazing interview of that guy. But anyway.
3: But where is this podcast of yours?
1: This is like your feminism podcast. <laughs> Except that I have done eight interviews, you haven't even done one. I have
3: done lots. Feminism ne Ram wala.
1: Ram wala. So my podcast will be out by Do, August. This,
3: they must. Be, the people I interviewed must have thought I'm some mole or something. <laughs> Tell me what you think about Ram and then nothing comes out of it. B- mine so, will be out in August.
1: <laughs> yours we'll see. It's like Mughalyasa. Ram
3: naomi pe pakka. It'll be out on Ramana. Uh, are you
1: team Sachin? Because you're English-speaking urban uppercast. And
3: I love Khan market. Nepal? It's my Sorry. favorite market. No, in, uh, are yeah, are you
1: interviewing it. anybody from Nepal?
3: I should. No. Go. <laughs> I think two things are very amusing. One, no journalist any longer reports on the Congress. Everyone's advising Congress. So even if you look at pieces, <laughs> you look at reports, it says Rahul Gandhi should have done this. Sachin ah. should have done that. Why didn't Gehlo do this? So in all of this, we just don't know what's happened. It's just advice columns written to the Congress. I hope they read it. There's lots of advice coming their way. To me, what really struck was, I mean, uh, we all know that Rajasthan elections was Sachin's MLA's versus Ghehlot's MLA's. They were basically fighting the election between each other. And this compromise formula came with Rahul Gandhi coming in. And he clicked that famous picture also with that caption, patience and virtue or whatever. With Ghelot and Sachin That also. was...
1: Actually, he did the same he thing there? the same thing how there.
3: So how So this was supposed to be a great compromise formula where you know Congress will be one happy family and they'll be working together. So the moment when notices go out, no less than sedition as a charge, how is the central leadership in Delhi just silent or letting this happen i mean why why weren't they saying like what is happening in your state why you guys not i mean clearly this is not something that just one fine day they were slapped with sedition and then you know such and revolted so the lack of central leadership is also quite alarming it's alarming that there's no one in delhi or no one in the central leadership apparently priyanka gandhi is making calls why one doesn't know i mean she's really she's not elected she's really a nobody So to me, I think that's quite alarming. And I mean, uh, team Sachin, team Gehlod, I think Gehlod does have the numbers here. So if you purely go by numbers, he just has more MLA supporting him. So you couldn't have put Sachin.
1: But do you think that uh, what Gehlod has articulated and many people have agreed with, the fact that Sachin is handsome, speaks good English, the same thing that made Jyotiraditya Aditya Sindhya so attractive to many people and I have always maintained he's a duffer from hell. Do you think there is truth in that is that why some of the Delhi journalists are so favorable to No, him?
5: I don't think that is the truth. I you think Gallaudet was playing a politics to kill Sachin forever in his state. So that that's what he was trying to do.
3: And Pilate and Sindhya so are different. Th- Pilate did work. He was ah. the state president of Congress. He did lead the party ah. to an mm. electoral victory. So he does have heft with him. It's not, he, he's pretty uh,
5: boy. He though. might have had a base in, mm. in terms of the, you know, constituency. But when I said that he started from the scratch, means building up the party. Mm. Like, 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 the, uh, the rustic the charm
3: always works with Delhi journalists. Yeah, De- ah. Delhi journalists love because of rusticity and not being able to speak. So I don't think, I mean, that's a bit of a generalization.
1: All right. Well, uh... From my sources. (laughs) Ah. Senior Congress leaders told me. Senior Congress leaders told me that basically nothing. So um, I would just like to discuss one thing very quickly. But before that, Anand, I'll just read this email out. I'm not reading the the retort because that's over a thousand words. This is from Sekhar Soma. Uh, First, let me express my best wishes to Team News Laundry for supplying us with excellent content and analysis and writing. Recently, knowing my fondness for the platform, my friend shared with me an article by Anand Vardhan on the depiction of the salaried class in pop culture. Though I admire the writings of Mr. Vardhan a lot, I cannot bring myself to agree with either the precedent or the arguments made in this particular article. Owing to the long discussion I had with my friends on the matter, I thought it would be perhaps interesting to share the same with Mr. Vardhan to know his perspectives on my understanding of the content. In this regard, I am attaching a brief write-up. Well, this write-up will be a part of, I guess, all the mails. Since it's an op-ed, I initially wanted to write to Mr. Vardhan himself, but his email was not mentioned. So, I'm sharing my views with your team as a rejoinder.
3: The email was sent to Anand though. I had sent it to him. So, he read it.
1: Please do let me know if you found his rejoinder relevant and what Mr. Vardhan may think of it. I would like to extend my sincerest apologies if any part of the rejoinder appears to be offending or confrontational. That was not my intention. I have passionately argued in the piece. Also, perhaps because it is an outcome of a heated argument with an engineer friend. Look forward to hearing your views and Mr. Vardhan on the same. Thanks Soumya no we don't get offended in fact well sometimes i do but i think the rest of my team doesn't <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, but offense is fine yeah we we like discussing stuff i think it's healthy uh, anand uh, can you just briefly first for those of our audience who may not have read your piece or the other piece briefly tell us your thesis and what uh, soumya's thesis is
0: no no i am assuming that except uh, soumya and, uh, and me nobody read it
1: so, <laughs> so a bit about it then.
0: So yeah, it is. Uh, a, a, so I would say it was uh, it. It was a blend of a light uh, piece and uh, some some social observations uh, and uh, how it's depicted in pop culture. So uh, it was not a very uh, you guess you can say a very dense and piece. It, it was a mix of both. So I I just said that how there is a tendency in pop culture to romanticize certain kind of artistic free spirit, spirited people as against people who are having regular work life and uh, the office going types right. which uh, includes engineers and uh, the defamation of engineer is a subtext to the kind of uh, portrayal of office types as dull and boring types and and being the less attractive options for romantic life or or something like that it was so i gave some examples in it some from films also i gave some examples which are not part of popular culture but a part of culture like literary fiction in india and so and that that was essentially the point uh so uh, what, uh, what he is saying is i so uh, he's saying that uh, is not a pr- problem because he's saying that i can't bring myself to agree with it but that's not a problem you 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 should not begin r- reading an article with the exercise that you have to agree with it so first it is not a problem you are welcome to disagree with it there is no point of uh, any dispute on, fa- or on facts. It's basically an article which his retort is basically about interpretation of different characters in different contexts. And my piece is about interpreting them those characters in a different context. So there is also something about difference of opinion. I don't know what to say to a difference of opinion. you are entitled to have one. you are welcome to have one. And also you see pieces can't be about everything. pieces, even academic thesis books cannot be about everything as Einstein they, said they have they, they have a particular frame of reference and within which
1: they try to address any point. There's yes. no God's no. theorem. Right. So thank you for that. Uh, now, uh, I'd just like to quickly end in next five ten minutes, if everybody could yeah. quickly give the view. Context is that there's a young stand-up comic in Bombay called Agrima Joshua. She uh, had done this stand-up act, you know, a couple of years ago, where she had said that, Ye Chhatrapati Shivaji ka statue banega, which is supposed to be bigger than even Sardar Patel's statue and, she's and basically she was mocking that people will believe anything someone was saying that the statue will be covered by solar panels and then these solar panels will power all of mumbai or something like that and i said going to aankhon a laser beam niklegi or just that so a she was making fun of that's it yeah she was making fun of statue not shivaji not shivaji even if she was making fun of shivaji i think that's fine and but yeah. a she wasn't doing that uh-huh. b some insane guy and uh, you know threatened her with rape and then the other it just became this contagion of people threatening over with rape and after that a guy called Aman Malik I think is his name uh, he had done a stand-up thing a few years ago where he had made fun of the Ganesh Visarjan and again he was not making fun of Ganesh Ji although even if he was it was fine I think he was saying that how people are getting drunk and dancing in front of Ganesh mm-hmm. Ji and what would Ganesh Ji be thinking that okay so you've come here to do my Visarjan you know he says because they keep dancing they keep doing this with that I don't know it's some Marathi move I don't know what the <laughs> fuck that move is so that was his humour and he also had to apologize. Come on, uh, a, that's not
3: even... Then, then right.
1: Rohan Joshi is... A, so there's this spate of apologies. Now, I sympathize with these journalists and I've said this in Awful and Awesome. We've discussed it at length. I do think that their apologies disappoint me a bit. I mean, wait for an fire before you apologize. I mean, you, I think it's a Bombay thing. Bombay is used to apologizing to Shiv Sena no matter what happens. You know, yeah. five people come and say, fuck off, why are you celebrating Valentine? Okay, sorry. I mean, in, in Delhi, and I've written a piece on that, which is, why, your business, which I is why I consider Delhi mm-hmm. truly cosmopolitan, because the Shiv Sena, when they tried to do this in my presence in Wimpy's when I was at NewsTrack, this Jai Bhagwan Goyal, he and his goons are hammered, and typical Delhi goons got together and bashed them up and said, we will sit here and celebrate. Who the fuck are you to tell us? Now, do you think, and of course, the Home Minister, who has nothing else to do in Maharashtra, tweeted that please take action against both the people who did the rape threats, but also against Agri Joshua.
3: Yeah. Which is quite rich. And uh, the Gujarat police has arrested that guy. That
1: guy, the rape He's been threat been guy has been arrested. But yeah. now there are three or more who have given a rape threat. Now, I just would like the panel to weigh in. Are we, because I know now comics in Bombay are censoring what they're saying. I mean, I Quint has done a piece. They tried to get comics to talk to them. No one wants to come on record. Everybody's shit scared. I think it's tragic. I think we're going down the way. And I, I think that while the Maharashtra government is a BJP, uh, is a Congress Chief Sena government, I think this is a tendency of the hardcore Hindu right, of these rape threats and how do you make fun of this person, how do you make fun of that person? Is it just a Twitter bubble that these people live in? Because I know journalists have been getting threats of rape and murder for the longest time. They haven't apologised, pulled down their stories. Is it a Twitter bubble that makes the problem bigger than seem bigger than it is? Or is it actually a big enough problem? And do you think it's a bit disappointing that all of them are like running to apologise? Every comic.
3: Yeah, and especially because uh, Shiv Sena has been getting a lot of goodwill from the liberal circles, no? That, oh, new, like, new leader, nice, and we're happy to live here and not in a BJP-governed state. So happens that the BJP-governed state has arrested a guy, and whereas she had to apologize to Shiv Sena and all these guys. So, yeah, it's quite sad because uh, if all these comics in Bombay could have come together and stood their ground for her, petitioned to the CM and said, look, you can't bully us like this. This is, you know, there's nothing. I mean, you can't just be screaming fascism and screaming... Uh, you know, death of freedom of speech when it comes to the BJP. I, I do think here, because purely because there's also the Congress in the power, in the government alliance, Congress, NCP and Chipsena, they could have actually really stood together, stood their ground and went to the government, even met the CM, met the home minister and said that this is really not, you know, you're you're also in, a, in the capital of the entertainment industry. It just doesn't augur well for any of this even for the scene, if everyone has to be bothered about making a joke of a statue of Shivaji, that's just too much. Hmm. And even for Ganesh, I mean, he's basically making fun of the revelers, not yeah. the Ganesh idol. Right. Forget the fact that whether you can offend gods or not, but you can, of course, offend people, yeah.
1: But I think so, one of the very funny bits when he was like, <laughs> he said, Ganesh is sitting there thinking, yeah, kya ye kaise He said, itna shrap raha hai? He says, let me call dad. He says, "Yaar, mal hai? Referring to Shivji phooking it was yeah. No, and it's hardly no, this offensive. Is and what Manisha think, is
5: saying is ideal way of uh, you know dealing with the problem. But I think it's a big enough problem. If you listen to these comics, because they are losing out their business. If they want yeah,
3: losing business that's
5: big. that's the main thing, and that's yeah. why they don't want to do the political. Uh, so it's an economic impact. Plus, uh, I think
3: in so India, comedy as uh, you know, speaking true to power, or the John Oliver, or the John Stewart, uh, that sort of comedy is not what most comics want to do. Comedy still in India is about making people laugh, doing good business, getting a house full and making money out of corporate shows and other stuff. So I think, unlike journalists who can do nothing else but tell stories, so we can't really keep apologizing for every story we tell because that would mean our business shuts, but for comics, they can just go back to cracking jokes on, on engineers, <laughs> like Anand said, or on anything else. It need not be political or a commentary on society.
4: Maharaj, your view? Uh, this is an important point. I mean, whenever we tend to talk about curbs on freedom of speech, we usually talk about the government and the police. And all. this economic pressure mm-hmm. to conform is very important. I mean, if you don't have a job, if you can't make a living, how are you going to? I mean, it's easy to say, okay, all these comics should gather together they have the mm. privilege they can speak up but if tomorrow they don't even have a job they have to struggle for a living how are they going to speak up mm. i mean you have to have that security to speak up right and this is one of i'm going to recommend this piece at the end it's uh, it's an uh it's a speech that bertrand russell gave back in 1922 he talks about this how economic pressure is one of the key he lists three things that are the most that are used most often by countries all over the world, societies all over the world, curb free speech and freedom of thought. One is education, another is propaganda and third is this, economic
1: pressure. Okay, then, After your recommendation, I, even I will do a recommendation of Bertrand Russell <laughs> on his contribution to pop culture. But Anand, uh, you want to weigh in on this? I mean, you think I'm being too harsh on the comics to expect them not to apologize uh, because they don't really have a choice. There's an economic impact.
0: Now what if the apology was sincere? So if I, sometimes I think that I crossed the line, I could have cracked a joke without saying so. Or if a painter or cartoonist thought that depicting a particular deity in a particular way was not in good taste, there can can also be an introspection, not only intimidation. So it happens, it happens. If you write something, uh, looking back at it to say five months later, you can think that I could have done away with this sentence. This was not required. So I don't know what the case with this particular comedian is, but it can sometimes happen also, epilepsy can come from introspection also, not only intimidation. So that is, there are cases where I personally think, but they need not adhere to it, that they choice their choice of words leaves a lot to be desired and the imagery they make. I think that, that's an easy way out to make uh, some comical remarks, to use certain imagery, to use certain words. I think it lessens the efforts of uh, a comedian's craft because making people laugh in a clean way, or I'm not uh, mistaking clean for being politically correct, but doing away with certain words can certainly help. That's my view. I'm not for censorship but for their own, for uh, you can say their own craft uh, there is a lot of escapism in using certain imagery and words to make people laugh that's the easy way the second is that uh, comedy is also generational one generation the older generation may not laugh at the jokes of current, current gen- generation and vice versa that is also there it is also regional like i myself don't I don't cannot bring myself to laugh at a lot of metropolitan jokes because I don't find them funny. Similarly, they will not find me funny. So it is also not of universal value. So, yeah, I think, yeah I think
1: the aesthetics of comedy or taste is a different matter. And that, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, a no brain It's an inevitability that will be different. I think hmm. the point is that, like, I wouldn't even go into the aesthetics of whether the jokes are funny or not. And I personally didn't weigh in on that, although... I pride hmm. myself of having won four awards for my satire writing when I did Gustaki Ma for seven years. You see when that Gio Gis Charlie what was that? Who were killed? Gisui Charlie. Huh. The, the Charlie. Now you know when that happened I wrote a piece and I remember shortly after that in a few publications there was criticism of them. A lot of their humor wasn't funny. There was just like a few images of the Prophet Muhammad with his balls hanging out running. Like it had no context. It was just fucking let's provoke. You know let's I don't think that that conversation was relevant at the time. I had no exposure to their work. For me, they were just these 12 guys who had been shot because they drew the Prophet Muhammad. I saw their work after I got to know who they were. I didn't even know who they were till they were killed. I think the commentary on their work was irrelevant. It is what had happened. Now, I'm not saying people have been killed here. For me, the commentary on the work is irrelevant. And I've written a piece on this. We are getting to a stage where what the Prophet is that you cannot make an image of him. Are people like Satrapadi and Modiya becoming? And I've written this in a piece in News Laundry that maybe when I am strong and powerful enough or have enough money in the bank to make sure that I can fight a legal case because I think it's easier to protect yourself against physical harm. It's a legal harm that could completely compromise an organization. And the concept is I want to start an image of a, a, a comic book like we've done Amar Bari, Tom Bari, that starts off with Modi being drawn and there just being this black blanket that is the profit prophet because you can't draw him, right? And by the end of the comic... The prophet is fully drawn, and Modi is this white beard floating around because he cannot be. He has reached that status. I think that would piss off everybody equally, but the likelihood of us surviving after that will be low. <laughs> so, so, but I really want to commission that comic at some point. And I think the aesthetics are irrelevant. If if I can't crack a bad joke, even if it pisses you off, yeah, it's, where it's, are it's, we? Then? It's a pathetic state of a country where. Have you seen that? Have you seen Mahmood's humor? Uh. I mean, I find Mahmood's humor funny, but now because I have one leg in the woke canoe and one leg in the not woke canoe, I'm also laughing at his humor and I'm also cringing at it. Like, what? You know, even in Chaturanar, Nar, is my father's favorite, all time favorite films. He's married to a Tamilian. Even my mother thinks there's nothing wrong in it. I mean, like, what the fuck? But that's the India we lived in. Now, bloody hell. You'd, you'd make Padossan today in Tamil Nadu your. Putla will get phukored. Yeah, That's where the fucking we are, man.
3: No, but that's a very important point. The right to crack a bad joke. yeah.
1: That's what freedom I mean, of speech is. Just,
3: if it's just a bad joke, it's a bad joke.
4: That's what freedom of speech is all about. It's to accept views that are unpalatable to you. I think I had made it clear that I was not
0: in favor of censoring it. I, I said that. My point is not against what he should do or what he should not do. But what I am saying that people can have different takes on comedy. Yeah, of course. And also politically incorrect commentary is very much part of comedy. I think it derives it, its a strength from that. So that is all fine that is all fine I was never against it I I was talking about aesthetics just as an add-on to the discussion that had already happened I was not going to repeat
1: those things now. anyone any Mahmood fans here other than me okay both of us clearly sir, the woke generation yeah. doesn't like Mahmood I mean
3: not a fan I, think yeah, I liked his movies but I'm he not was like, so like,
1: delightfully he... crass he was Really, he was so crass. It was delightful, too good. I
5: I like Kishore Kumar. I like him. I like Johnny Walker.
1: Yeah, Johnny Walker wasn't crass. He was genuinely funny. And before we wind up, uh, we just would like to talk a little bit about this flood situation in the northeast. In fact, it's on the BBC. Also, it's the only Indian story that is on the BBC Morning Bulletin is the Assam floods. And
3: one Indian story probably missing from...
1: Well, uh, to be honest, uh, three days ago, uh, Amitabh yeah. Bachchan and family being COVID positive made it to the BBC. Oh yeah, Bulletin.
3: we didn't... That wasn't part of the headlines.
1: Prakash Shair has written, I liked uh, episode 280 for a lot, especially discussion around Sindhya and cancel culture. One part about Hafta, I find grating is looking almost everything through a prism of casteism... I think this episode showed a better glimpse of that flawed outlook. Panel pretty much agreed that names of villains had to do with casteism. And this is especially glaring considering Gavindandan has a pop culture podcast. The weird names like Shakal were a temporary phase around 70s, 80s when villains were like comic book characters. If you look into popular movies before, Sholay of from 90s, Shiva, Satya, then you won't see that pattern. One of the most popular older films, Mother India, had a villain named Sukhi Lal. No doubt about which caste category that belonged to. And today we have a Trivedi. Sacred Games, Fyagi, and Tripathi in Mirzapur.
3: Mostly Brahmins.
1: And even there was a time around the 80s and later, that's when I grew up. Ghayal was Balwantrai, Damini was inderjeet Chadda, Bazi was Madan Chopra, all fairly popular villains. But if you want to look at it, probably through casteism, sure, key breaking. My take is, they just chose certain names in 70s, 80s, which rolled off the tongue with a nice punch. And no Vikas <laughs> Pandey doesn't have that aesthetic sound for the comic book style depiction. Waiting for Mehraj to add... What is good, bad aesthetics is defined by casteism at 321. Then he adds, I wrote that criticism regarding casteism by panel, and later today I read this. And then he's linked to the New York Times piece on the cast at the Cisco. Felt a bit like egg on my face as I'm an NRI and an a <laughs> Though I do think there is some merit in what I had to say.
3: Nobody's right that the names of late have not been the typical Daku names like you were saying.
4: Maybe not the names but the depiction is still there. Do you see how they for example portrayed Alauddin Khilji? He was a royal king. I mean he was one of the greatest He's kings of his time. He's cannibals. He's But
1: like you know,
4: this. More
3: the, to fit Islamophobia. That's a different
4: All the bad characters I mean, in the movies these but, days, yeah. police but, characters are Muslims with coal-lined eyes. and
1: But Prakash, and by the time, a very, one of my closest friends, she's a professor of uh, at Creative Writing at NYU. She wrote Monsoon Wedding, Kamine, Ishkiya and many of these films. She's just been nominated onto the Academy, the US Academy. Uh, Sabrina Dhawan, is teaching a course on how villains... Depicted Indian cultural and social ethos through the ages. So, what when you're saying Mother India and all, that time we were coming out from a phase where there was scarcity, and the banya was the villain because they would thok to roti kapra or makan, right? From Mother India to roti kapra or makan, it was always the banya or the guy who was hoarding grain. or that uh, you know that other uh, the good daku upnagodam the kawa. Then She's, she goes on to the bit about when there were the dakus of the chambal ravens, when there was lawlessness and there was these bihads, there were baggies And then she's gone on to show how. Then it became the NRI thing. that, that time, the, the NRI, there was no clear villain. It was much more a clash of family and values of the NRI versus Indian. Then there was an entire Islamophobia thing, right from, you know, what you're talking about. So, what I said... I agree with you that it is not just caste. I was saying a Daku would never be called. Maybe I said Hindi movie villain. But it would, be, it would not be Daku, Manisha, Pandey. It would all be Daku, Gabbar Singh. The, it can
3: be, but that's the, what he's saying.
1: Yeah, No, but Given not a Privedi Daku, the villain can be. He's so not a dark. Daku.
3: Okay. See,
1: Manisha, if you were a villain, you'd be the slimy one who's holding Atta and not feeding us. You'd not be the brave <laughs> one not riding not people horse.
3: to enter temples. I would be the... You
1: know, Abhinandan Sekri would be the villain who was not paying his employees. Not the one who's taking over the world. So in that context, Aprakash, I think what I said was accurate. And I would uh, highly recommend that when NYU opens up again, you go sit in Sabrina's class. When she told me about this, that she's Sabrina preparing this a thesis. A...
5: She's,
1: she's actually doing saw... a course on this in at NYU. On Indian villains, you know, is like in the 70s, it was all smuggler. You know, during the, when you couldn't take a gold, every villain was a gold smuggler. So, and
3: Alauddin Khilji actually, the problem is not just the. Dip- I mean, they got everything wrong. Like Khilji's, he was actually uh, reciting a Persian pop song on the stairs. You know, like there's a very fam- famous Persian pop song. No, everything about how they passed chicken. off as some poetry. They were
4: very refined people, but anyway. So this part about good bad aesthetic it is defined by casteism not just by casteism. But that's a one important point. I was talking to T.M. Krishna about say Carnatic music. Why is it that Carnatic music is the standard, this beautiful music and say the Adivasi folk music isn't? Because the people who practice Carnatic music, they have the power in the society. Same way in a culture, why why is Ghalib's poetry considered more refined, more eloquent than say what you would call six, <laughs> for example, <laughs> Meer. say, I mean, usually say you go out on the street, there's a auto rickshaw fellow. There's a rickshaw fellow. He, he is listening to like what you would call this very bad, terrible Bollywood song. Tom to Joby. and he is listening to it, but because it expresses his emotions or it expresses his feelings, his love, for example. And you go inside in your beautiful home, listen to Galib. Why are your feelings more important than his, more refined than his, more aesthetic than his? Hmm. So it's because you have power, you have the cultural power, you define it by your standards, not by his standards. Right. Same is the case with the same is the case with dance, same is the case with literature. Hmm. I mean, this country is a textbook by, example of there it. Is it. An,
3: there is I a mean, difference between and
1: Yeah, and know, but I think what, I th- what I'm saying is, general <laughs> he is
3: distance. more refined, I'd Why? say.
1: Because there's there is also a, some pure no, assessment no, no, of there art, no? there's no objective assessment. This is a subjective assessment. Art is assessment. not, exactly. But
3: How you feel it is different, but there's still, I mean, Galip's poetry is...
4: So, Galip's give poetry. Galip's poetry to a person who understands Urdu language, who is a native Urdu speaker, and let him uh, recite Galip's poetry. <laughs> Would it express his feelings the same way it expresses in you?
1: Probably, so that's not no? the only
4: purpose
3: of art, no? Yeah, but I to think, find my expression. But
1: I think what Mehraj is wrong about, it, this is a very long discussion that has often taken place Uh, i wanted to say something about this whole
0: business of sociology of uh, popular culture it gives a material to a lot of people even me in fact the discussion just now on my piece was just a kind of attempt of sociology of popular culture the response was also it but uh, both uh, me including all are at times guilty of over reading things it may be a one-way traffic because when the script writers or you may say the lyricists write something there may be other considerations uh, not the kind of distraction that people subject them to so uh, it uh, becomes a one-way traffic in that in that sense also the discussion around casts this the uh, what if you see places say like like Bihar is considered in India as one of the most caste-inflicted societies now if you have observed it for a longer period of time you will see it just as one of the factors not the overriding social factor here so again that application of template that folly counts, that kind of flaw, because I see it as spheres of influence. Different castes having spheres of influence, historically powerful castes. Historical, uh, so uh, are same caste people benefiting from other castes or de- the certain dep- depictions or portrayals or oh, spheres of influence? They, they, may, they may hitch their interests to other castes. So you have uh, powerful caste leaders, of other castes and other people trying to benefit from that sort of leadership. So there is a lot of uh, within caste spheres of influence. It's not very that this is the decisive factor, this is the only factor deciding it. It may be one of the factors in some of the circumstances But uh, reading all social behavior, all attitudes around it, I I I don't agree with.
1: I don't think anyone does. I think other than math and to an extent maybe physics, chemistry, and biology, everything is not an absolute. Even economics is not. So yeah, that's. uh, But
4: one uh, quick point I'd like to make about this. So when we talk about caste, we usually understand it like casteism is just this upper caste. Yeah. Oppressing the lower caste. Yeah. But that is not always the case. I mean, as Ambedkar recognizes, the sort of wicked genius of the caste system is that every layer has someone something to, to yeah.
1: oppress. Someone to oppress. And, and even at the bottom, there are you know wheels within wheels which, which exactly. determine so your this, power dynamic. So
4: this dynamic exists throughout the story. And when we are talking about, uh, like the letter also said, the prism of caste. So there is, this is where we fundamentally disagree i don't see this as a prism as an aspect of society of indian society i see it like when we talk about the universe it's we talk foundation. about this fabric of time and space this is the fabric in which all these things exist these it influences these things it's not like that it is the always the most motivating uh, factor most powerful factor but it always affects every bit it's the thing. canvas the it's rest is the, the painting right? i mean another example for example so we when we talk about say we talk about universe, we talk about God. Does the universe make sense to you without a God? A lot of people say it doesn't. It makes sense without a God like that Mm, being.
1: Whatever it is. Whatever
4: it is, it makes sense to them without that. That's fine. For me, for example, it doesn't make sense without that God person there, right? So when I talk about how the universe operates, how this thing operates, it doesn't make sense if I don't place that God figure there. right? Similarly, it doesn't make sense to me why for example, only Dalits are 25 percent of the population, but only two percent of them are of the graduates. are Dalits. It doesn't mm. make sense to me without sure. explaining caste. It doesn't make sense to me why the basically 90 percent of the land, land assets, the capital in this country is controlled by upper castes who are like less than 20 percent of the population. I
1: I, th- I think there's enough data. The U.S. is which is a very data-rich country has NPR has done a whole series on this. I think it's very useful. But uh, we are... Across two hours, I would like everybody to quickly give their recommendations. I want to wi- wind this up in f- five minutes, but before that, we talk about this every year, Mehraj. Uh, so, since you haven't been here for one year, <laughs> uh, we talk about how the Assam floods come. Manisha tells the same story, I tell the same story, Raman tells the same story. On every dhab I went to, there was on stilts set of 30 feet high, homes on stilts 30 feet high. Kajiranga has the road that bisects it, which is higher, 50 feet higher than both sides, so therefore it- the whole park becomes a lake. What new do we have until when does this have to go on? Seems but like it's going to questions. go on forever. Because right now the toll How is, bad has the damage this year been? It's around uh,
4: 92 is the latest toll. Casualty figures. Around uh, 5.5 lakh people have been uh, affected across all pretty much every district. And to compound the problem, not just in the immediate term, in the long term is almost one and a quarter lakh hectares of crops have been damaged and that the impact of that is going to be long term throughout the year and what is the most saddest thing and the most thing that should outrage everybody is that this has been happening year after year, year after year these lives uprooted, they settle again uprooted again and there's not no solution is being found mm. to this and and another,
3: this is also the what? place where the government expects people to produce documents for the NRC so, and another
5: story which I read uh, this time people b- broke their own houses so that the bricks do not go away so they wanted to save those bricks after the floods recede then, the seed, they, them then they will build them ag- back wow, again that's so they tragic, were they man. were breaking their houses uh, even before the flood you know touched their houses. to preserve yeah, the bricks yeah, preserve uh, sorry it i think i damage.
4: misspoke it's 35 lakh people 35 and a half lakh people not five and a half lakh 5 and, and a
1: half a half lakh is in uh, the worst hit district which is but dubri the total hit are 35 lakh yeah 33.5 million yeah uh, what about that anyway the annual Flood. The annual Kosi flood hasn't happened, Anand. It will happen. It, it will happen. The same Wait for time. it.
4: <laughs> Sam and I mean to imagine that natural disasters are like so inevitable in this country.
0: There are some districts uh, which are on verge of being inundation, and uh, Kosi, Gandak, these are two major uh, rivers. Uh, Ganga is not a, um, a very, you can say, f- flood. Um, bringing river in India, uh, sorry, in B- Bihar. Uh, sometimes uh, the Magad districts get inundated, but uh, not not for long. Uh, but uh, the Kosi region and Gandak, and uh, the, these are the uh, rivers which bring. And some districts are uh, are uh, reporting the inundation aspect. Of, uh, what will from migration point of view happen is that a lot of migration comes from the flood affected districts and since many of them have returned and so it is this time, this uh, is this, this time of the year right. that many new migrants go to metropolitan cities or say and because of COVID no way, they're not here, right? Uh, now, now they don't have that option because of this 16-day uh, lockdown again enforced with a lot of uh, strictness. And uh, this is uh, going to be a crit- critical period, the flood period, because it is the uh, it is a period which brings a lot of
4: migration. Mm. To imagine, sorry, just to mm. just just cross my mind to imagine. I mean, you can tell the state of. The institutions of governance and accountability in this country, just by looking at two things. That the disaster natural disasters have become as much an inevitable fact of life as fake encounters. Right.
1: On that, not very encouraging note, let's get our recommendations. Can we quickly have them? I'm going to give mine first. And I'll just urge everybody to give their recommendations quick. I'm recommending a podcast from NPR. It's called Hollywood's Blacklist. It's a fascinating story about this black guy. In any case, there are very few black people as executives who got a job in Leo DiCaprio's production company. And he started something just as a lark and it became a thing. It's a really fascinating story. I was just hoping that maybe we should start something like that. But do check that out. And uh, there was another piece in The Wire that I found was an interesting read on uh, Bapu Gandhi's racism. I don't agree with all aspects, but I think it's a nuanced take. Because, you know, these days it's trendy to say Bapu was a racist or he was a Mahatma. He was neither. He was a man. That's that. But yeah, these are my two recommendations. Manisha?
3: One really short story just to make yourself feel happy is about, there's a story about this 50-year-old lady in Meghalaya who cleared her 12th exam. It's a really sweet story in the Indian Express. You should just read it just so that you feel, just to cheer you up. Um, the excesses of call-out culture in Atlantic because we've been talking so much about the cancel culture and there's an Amazon series called Rami. It's on Hulu. So those of you who have Hulu outside India could watch it. But those of you who are in India could watch it on Amazon. It's a really, it's sort of like a Muslim free bag. What's the, what's mm. the name? Rami, R A M Y. It's really funny. It tackles fundamentalism, Islamophobia, it's on devoutness. Yeah, it's about this Egyptian American guy who's devout but also debauched. So mm. I think it's brilliantly written. It's by that comic, it's basically just a just, uh, human written. being. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh. but it's, it's really brilliantly done.
4: Uh, the one I already referred to, Bertrand Russell's. Uh, It was a speech, Mm -hmm. free thought and official propaganda, it's called. It was delivered in 1922. There are a couple of things which, I mean, I don't agree with and history has proven them wrong in relation to religion. But other than that, I mean, all the topics we've been discussing about cancel culture, about freedom of thought, about nationalism, how it's an affliction, it covers all of it. It's worth reading and rereading.
3: Is it a big read? No,
5: it's a very thin book. No, not that much. It's a small
3: Not that much, Yeah. yeah.
5: Raman, sir. Two articles in Indian Express... One written by Manishankar Raya. And there is a rebuttal today by Pradyut. He is an ex-congressman. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it's interesting. I yeah, mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Where Manishankar Shankaraya is talking about the Congress ideology, the culture, and also the fact that in its DNA, we have just three leaders who can lead this party. Sonia Gandhi, Rahul Gandhi, or Priyanka, Priyanka. Gandhi. So, and, and uh, then Pradyut today, he has... Yeah, he was with the Congress and he Left. has told that the kind of problems that he faced as a, and yeah. he said Tripura he is from Tripura so he said Tripura I think had uh, the maximum votes for the Congress yeah. uh, the Northeast and all so he said despite that the people like CP Joshi the, the the nomination culture that the Congress has mm. and how it is killing the Congress yeah. so Ambition this is, is I'll not try, bad sir, but
1: I must be honest with you there are certain things I'm very prejudiced about like I cannot read a piece by Tavleen Singh seriously and I cannot read a piece by Manish Shankarit. Seriously. I think no, they're both... I no, no. It's they're complete They're both buffoons. But no, maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe sometimes yeah. they make sense. Yeah. But it's no, just no, that once in your he is
3: a hardcore congressy and all that, but he's still worth listening to and reading, yeah. I think. I
1: think he's a casteist, elitist, snobbish. Ha, he, all
3: that he is, yeah. He, he is definitely an elitist. Insane
1: man who lives in a bubble. <laughs>
5: but, Not insane. so <laughs> and, uh, insane maybe there's now. one, uh, this Netflix pay, I mean, there's one uh, mini series on uh, Salisbury's uh, poison, poisoning. Oh, yeah, uh, this watch in 2018 there was a poisoning yeah. in uh, Salisbury, which has a population of 46,000. Russians had allegedly, you know, oh, right. that nerve yes, drug. Yes. You know, it affected. Mm. So interesting miniseries. Apparently, for it was all. A,
4: I mean, just a, not a and hoax, but more like an inside job or something. But I mean, they, nobody knows for sure.
0: Anand, your recommendations? Uh two recommendations uh, today. I had this. um, I came to know about this venomous thought that today's world is snake day.
2: Uh,
4: why on earth would there be a World okay. Snake Day of all things? So, World, world Snake Day.
0: So, uh, sorry, Anand, then, uh, is that in the literal sense or a metaphorical in reading sense? About snakes. I, I had a few years back read a book about snakes in India. It's, uh, it's an interesting book about Indian snakes. Snakes of India, The Field Guide. It's by Romulus Witter and So Captain. So, on World Snake Day, this is a venomous book. <laughs> That's so, I, would just, I should I is... should give this
3: to my father. He's a big snake fan. Like, I can't understand why.
1: Anand, I just want to give a warning to our Gujarati uh, brethren. Don't start reading books about khakhra and Fafra. He's talking hmm. about the ones that bite. So, on that bad joke oh, and God, having what a bad joke. pissed off all our Gujarati audience. Yeah, carry on, Anand. No, uh, second is uh, a
0: Hindi novel. Uh, and the English translation is also available. And it's by... Srilal Shukl, who uh, is better known for writing uh, the satire, Raag Darbari. But uh, the book I am recommending is a novel and his lesser known work. But I think it is a more mature work from him. And uh, perhaps... uh, his most accomplished work, and it's a, a Sunig Ka Shuraj and uh, uh, it has been translated into English so those who don't know him they can write they uh, can read the English version.
1: Thank you, Anand then on that note, please can I urge all of you to subscribe, even though for the next few weeks the Hafta is free, but my privileged and entitled colleagues still expect to be paid. So those of you who just, Pay us to access the Hafta. Please don't discontinue for the next four weeks. In fact, if, I, if you could use this time to share the Hafta wider so that it can become a habit for many. So when you pull it behind the paywall in another four weeks, those people do pay. Go to newslaundry.com. Click on the top right-hand corner and pay to keep news free. And do support News Laundry because we depend on you to survive. And our survival, I think, is something that adds a little bit of value to some people's lives. So please help us to keep going. Today's song I have picked specifically for the Congress party. So this goes out to them. This comes from the Ghatia Kavali Gharana of Kavalis. Have a good week. Have a good
5: weekend. (laughs) (laughs) can <laughs> do